Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 99 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined as always by the co-host of the show, Matt Feuerstein. And for the second time, we are bringing on one of the great guests, one of the 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 grand, I was going to say grand dames, but they're not a woman, and I'm the grand dame of wrestling podcasts, but one of the great names of wrestling podcasts. Uh, you might know them from the old days of Dr. Keith Presents on the Figure Four website. You might know them from these days with their show 4Ls, Pro Rest Paradise on Pro Wrestling Torch, or their written work on the Pro Wrestling Torch, all fancy. You might know them from their commentary, WXW. We only bring them out for the biggest shows. Alan Cunahan. It is great to have you back on the show. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here with you, a fine pair of just legendary podcasters in your own right, I would say. You guys are, uh, um, I, I feel like I was talking with, what show was it I did recently? I, I can't remember, but we were kind of talking about the the OG Cubs fan family of podcasters and just how you've kind of all spawned off into I, I don't know does it all is it the, the Cubs fan podcast family tree or the Joe Gagne podcast family tree it's it's hard to know but uh, maybe maybe they're the parents maybe they have different roles and uh, yeah you guys are you guys do that that family tree proud and I, I am I'm happy to be somewhat connected as some kind of like a, a, a leaf that's fallen off it in some way I don't know but uh, <laughs> yeah it's always great to talk to you guys we always have a blast um, whenever we get to chat trevor talked to you very recently on my show matt talked to you a couple of months back we talked about the the history of the hammerstein ballroom that was a really enjoyable show um to do and of course you guys have even engaged in some christmas party antics with me uh <laughs> an appearance at the dr keith christmas mansion uh what the end of 2020 i think maybe or 2021 one, one or the other we we uh we ambushed justin shapiro as we like to do and by the way trevor trevor if you're my great grand dame oh, if you're my grand dame then alan is my great grand dame that's how i would that's how i would describe it um but yes i guess i guess it is like the cubs fan slash joe gagney podcast family tree and i i mean i i appreciate the positive spin you put on it um and thank you there, there's another side to say we're still doing this and we're like in our late 30s but hey you know what why the hell not uh, it's, better, yeah. it's better hobbies than uh, a lot of people get into as they uh probably true they get older you know like heroin addiction or, yes well there's still time there's still time for us for that <laughs> um but um no but alan yeah i'm very exciting to have you back on uh you haven't been on since a podcast that we did about a show that took place in the middle of 2003 so this is almost three years in roh time later and like what like got at least four years in real time there's been a there's been a whole ass pandemic since then it doesn't feel like that long ago it's yeah the pandemic has just made everything such a such a blur like if you told me that was just last year i'd kind of believe you if you put the hard sell on it uh, (laughs) yeah i um that was a that was a very uh, that was a very big formative show in my ROH fandom. But now we're doing a show where I am already like yeah I am I'm in hook line and sinker at this point. I, I am a full on uh, robot and uh, <laughs> yeah it's um these were these were some big times for ROH uh, at this point and I know you guys discussed Supercard of Honor. 
uh, very recently. Uh, as I said to the guys, just for for the benefit of the, the listeners, I don't know how much of a difference it will make knowing this, but um, uh, I listen to the guys' shows every episode, but I um, like what Between the Sheets, I am perpetually behind, and I just kind of have my my kind of schedule of when I listen to these shows. So it's like, I'm never really going to catch up unless I just kind of increase the pace, which I should probably just do at some point. But I often like to watch along with the DVDs as well. And that takes time. So um, I'm like nine or 10 months behind in ROH time, I think, and over a year behind in, in terms of when the guys have done the shows. So I'm living in the summer of punk with uh, Matt and Trevor currently. And um, so they're, uh, there there may be some things like uh, that they have talked about and obviously with Supercard of Honor being the show before this that being a huge show that having the Dragon Gate guys on there something that I think is somewhat my wheelhouse and probably a reason why I'm on here talking about this show which also featured the Dragon Gate guys so uh, yeah I hopefully I'll be able to add some uh, interesting insight to those guys being here in, in ROH but uh I, I might be covering some ground that the, the guys have already covered. Well, you'll get to hear us talk about all the happy times that are happening when, when, with CM Punk's very joyous return to professional wrestling as you listen back through the Summer of Punk. Yeah, so- you haven't got the, the one I listened to last week. You You were still talking about him as if he was out of wrestling, and there obviously hadn't been any hints or anything because you weren't alluding to it at all. Uh-huh. You know what, the show truly is timeless. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out well, but uh, yeah, yeah, it, that that was um, sign of dishonor. Was the the last the, the Shane Hagedorn uh-huh. contract uh, show, which is what I always remember. I always remember <laughs> that show for Shane Hagedorn uh, uh, getting the contract signed on his back, which obviously you mentioned and then one of i was very disappointed that you guys didn't mention the other thing i always remember that show for although you kind of you kind of hit the um the general uh tone of this issue we're talking about cm punk uh, um needing someone to put a tie on for him because he was his, <laughs> his suit was too big the the thing that st- stuck out to me and it, this was the case on a few of those shows where Punk was wearing the suit and trying to act like he was like Ric Flair or whatever, just like real, uh, real awful heel that wears a suit. Look at this guy. Hey, well, who's he think he is? Some kind of suit wearer. Um, <laughs> he was uh, routinely wearing white socks with dress shoes um, with these suits. And uh, it just, yeah, didn't didn't look good. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite tropes in wrestling is like the people you can tell are comfortable in wearing suits, and the wrestlers that when they have to wear a suit for an angle, and you can tell, you can just tell like they haven't worn a suit in their lives. They they don't know the little details. They look so uncomfortable. Trevor, are you someone who feels comfortable wearing a suit? Oh God, no! I, I don't yes. even know if I've ever worn a full suit. I I my parents like would dress me up formal for a couple weddings when I was very young, but like I I just have like good slacks i don't really have a, i don't have a suit Matt. not until someone puts a ring on this finger all right i'll do it okay. just so you can get that suit yeah i'll marry i'll marry you just so you get a damn suit already <laughs> well 
I, I opted to go without the uh, without the suit for my wedding. I had nice formal attire on, but I wasn't wearing a, a a classic suit. But we also got married in a park surrounded by ducks and Baron Corbin. So <laughs> <laughs> were the were the du- were the ducks wearing a suit? No, no, they weren't. Sadly, Baron was, was Baron Corbin wearing a suit. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, he, Damn. Yeah, he, uh, he just he just walked past as we were kind of finishing. Uh, he was the so. he was the witness of your wedding. He pretty much was. Uh, I think the the reverend in uh, Louisiana acted as the um, as the witness. It was it was literally just a reverend, me, Sarah, a load of ducks, and then we finished up, and then we walked across the park to this little um, cool little uh, bakery thing that they had in, in within the park. This kind of old timey bakery place that you get these classic. Um, New Orleans uh, baked goods that this particular spot was famous for or whatever and we sat down we got that and then Baron Corbin came up and uh, it's like hey it's Baron Corbin wouldn't it be hilarious if here we are uh, standing in our uh, wedding attire and just get a photo of Baron Corbin and uh, we revealed that we got married to a bunch of people by sending them this photo of us <laughs> and that's exactly what we did <laughs> so, it's so weird that like he's going to be part of like one of your most important Important memories forever, <laughs> like the way, you know, <laughs> yep. like you will always remember having beignets, probably, and seeing Baron Corbin. beignets. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you yeah. meant. I thought you meant that the match that he had against um, Kurt Angle at WrestleMania 35 was one of Alan's most important memories, and then also, and then also, the wedding was pretty good too. <laughs> this was uh, this was thirty. Yeah. 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 The one where the one where uh, Danielson came back, right? Yes. Yeah. Because that was the last mania I went to. Yeah. So, um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, I remember, um, what was I going to say? Uh, I had another thought there, but it's gone out of my head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, just so people don't like think I'm just absolutely horrible. We did also have some nice professional photos taken. Like, we didn't literally just go, for, well, that's the wedding done, over to, like, take a photo on our phone of Baron Corp. We, we got some nice photos as well, like, walking around the park and stuff like that. Was he Was he even on the main roster yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was. Um, he, he, he was. Uh, so, yeah. That was the we got some nice photos and then we got the the, the one with with Baron Corbin taken by uh, uh, one of his friends that he was with and then that got sent around to a whole load of people um so and they all they all got a quick kick out of it but uh, yeah, <laughs> there's there's a bit of 4L uh, history for, for that is a lovely story. <laughs> well, you found, Alan, the one way to make this show less exciting by comparison, because this was a WrestleMania weekend where Alan did not get married near Baron Corbin. But uh, <laughs> no, some I, other sat, things- I sat at home. I sat at home on my couch uh, reading the Oro H board and downloading an MP3 with crowd noise of Jimmy Loves Lacey. <laughs> <laughs> I might have I done the same thing, Alan. Don't feel bad. Um. That takes us to the show we are covering today, which was the final show of the famous Ring of Honor triple shot WrestleMania weekend 2006. Better than our best took place April 1st, April Fool's Day 2006 at the Frontier Fieldhouse in Chicago Ridge, Illinois, in front of a reported record-breaking crowd for Ring of Honor of 1,700 fans. Um, the Pro Wrestling Torch said that uh, the, this April event, in uh, April first event, in Chicago had the highest advanced ticket sales of any Ring of Honor event er, 
ever. So not just a good walk up. And as we talked about on the last show, Carrie Silkins on the record is saying that these two shows in Chicago were the only time in his tenure owning Ring of Honor that Ring of Honor came out ahead on a profit just from the live event. Um, another thing to mention, Matt and Alan, uh, this is a, a new era for Ring of Honor and for through the years because on the Pro Wrestling Torch would also know at this point that Ring of Honor DVDs can now be as long as three and a half hours, which means that home releases will include full entrances for wrestlers and more promos. And in fact, yes, this DVD is the first Ring of Honor DVD that was not a double DVD set that actually breaks the three-hour mark. I believe it goes something like 315 or 320, something like that. So... From now on, it's not going to be every Ring of Honor DVD, but that was like an extra. They have a potential to stick an extra fifteen twenty minutes on these shows now for the home yeah. movies. It'll be it'll be mo- it'll be almost all of them. Yeah. So get ready oh, for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, more of my time I have to I have to do for this fun hobby. I I shouldn't complain, but and I think that coincides with if I remember right, this would have been the era that a lot of the ROH wrestlers' music started getting really popular and like people would be sharing the files of the like i know i had a folder in my windows media player that was just oro h and had like loads of oro h team themes that um because you were getting the full entrance and also hearing them a lot better i think they excuse me i think with showing the full entrances they might have also tried to make some improvements to the audio um, cause I certainly on this show, I noticed, um, I had a note for, uh, one match in particular where it was very, um, you could hear both the audio really crisply, um, for the song, but you could also hear like people in the crowd, uh, stuff that was being said really crisply as well. So it was like just very good audio during, during the entrances, they got the, the mix down pretty well, which is so often an issue in wrestling, particularly with independent companies. But uh, yeah, it was during it was yeah it was during uh, Jimmy Jacobs' entrance where he's coming out to Jimmy Love Battle of Lacey, and uh, um, you're, you're hearing that in very clear audio and think, oh my god, this is amazing, and it's such a fun uh, addition to the character. And um, then you hear a guy in. Uh, in the crowd very clearly go hey Lacey he loves you and then you just hear <laughs> you can't see Lacey at all like you, you, they've got the hard cam but you just hear Lacey completely clearly go I know I know everybody loves me oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff uh, it wasn't all happy though because actually one of the big stories of this weekend turned out that people maybe don't remember turned out to be injuries and I I, we covered a couple of them as they happened on the uh, the previous show. Obviously, the big famous one was uh, Matt Seidel's nose breaking, just exploding, in which we will see a repeat of in a different stable mate on this show. But rather than just go through them show by show, so many of them happened that they got kind of like a separate rep in the Observer. And we might as well get them all out of the way here, although I'm sure we'll still talk about Aries' injury in that match because it's another bad nose break. But um, Dave Meltzer wrote in the Observer – this is just like a recap of injuries that happened during the triple shot. Most of it happened on this night. So here's Dave writing it. Uh, Homicide went to the hospital and needed stitches to close his cut from the street fight match with Cabana. Austin Aries suffered a broken nose on the April 1st show. Samoa Joe suffered a shoulder injury on the April 1st show. Allison Danger got a black eye. Daisy Hayes suffered a stinger and was having problems moving her neck. Roderick Strong suffered a twisted knee. Shima suffered a busted lip in the April 1st show match. Smash Bradley suffered a broken nose on April 1st. Jim Cornette's knee popped out as he was rolling out of the ring in the April 1st angle. 
ankle. Adam Pierce injured his ankle. Claudio Castagnoli was limping at the end of the weekend as well. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, the combination of working that stiff and doing three shows in a weekend instead of two took an incredible physical toll. That's probably your answer if you wonder why you don't see that these kinds of matches at Ring of, at WWE house shows that you do on Ring of Honor house shows. Uh, the torch would add in that the list of injuries coming out of Ring of Honor's triple shot during WrestleMania weekend was due to a variety of factors. Quote, maybe you can chalk it up to everyone pouring their hearts out on every match, says one Ring of Honor wrestler. Maybe you can chalk it up to pro wrestling being a tough sport. And we're not pussies. Shit happens in the ring. You take the good with the bad. It's not ballet we're doing out there. So, um, man, what a voice, Trevor. <laughs> I always like when a wrestler go, does the old, we're not, it's not ballet, because isn't ballet actually like a very physically demanding? Yeah, I mean, I saw Black, I saw, I saw Black Swan, looked pretty fucking intense to me. Um, but, um, was that Adam Pierce or Ace Steel? Yes, exactly. I think there's always a good outside shot of uh, knowing uh, Wade's interviews, who he's talked to, of Austin. That could, I could see Austin Aries saying that's oh, yeah. not really out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if um, if that article that you just read explains AEW in 2022. <laughs> well, if AEW, you know, only do, I mean, that was the thing, wasn't it? Was everyone was saying, oh, oh Wade, Wade talking to people from Minnesota? I, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but no i was gonna i was gonna say um you know that was the big thing people were saying oh we're gonna see this great experiment when aew comes of like do injuries happen less when wrestlers work one day a week and i think we've seen that you know it kind of doesn't matter i don't think like wrestlers are gonna get hurt right because you get hurt during like an incident where an injury happens and like that could happen just doing something once yeah, especially with like black eyes and broken noses and all that i don't think that was down to like oh the the toll of the weekend <laughs> his eye finally that <laughs> the eye finally uh had had enough or the nose had finally had enough and just broke it it's just <laughs> taken so much punishment <laughs> you know jim Cornette having a bum knee like give out on him when he like rolls into a ring you know isn't necessarily like the wear and tear of a hectic schedule like you're absolutely right but still i don't think i can remember like a rundown of injuries that's ever happened on a show we've covered, at least that, that, that they've been publicly disclosed. Like, even just the obvious, I mean, we're not, we're leaving out, obviously, like we mentioned earlier, the Matt Seidel thing, but even, obviously, the very famous two shows earlier, two days earlier, BJ Whitmer breaking his ankle and Jimmy Jacobs nearly dying. You know, I, I mean, this was a crazy, crazy weekend for injuries. Um, But moving on... I'm just scrolling back down my notes. Okay, uh, here's a funny. I got a couple funny notes before we get to the show. This is one I, I just I just really enjoy. Um, this is the Observer. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins and Johnny Fairplay both attended the April 1st Ring of Honor show in Chicago. Corgan was a big ECW fan in its day. Fairplay tried to get backstage, but Samoa Joe made sure it didn't happen. Fairplay was at the WrestleMania party and is trying to sell people on the idea of bringing of him managing the Miz. I like the idea of Samoa Joe just being like, Johnny, you can't, you can't come back here. No, you're not one of the guys, Johnny. You know, Corgan, he can, he can show up, but you, 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 you buy a ticket, Johnny. But, um, the observer also noted, uh, this is something to remember too, because uh, sometimes we, uh, I, I kind of forget the schedules of these old shows, that the, this show, this Ring of Honor show went head to head with the WWE Hall of Fame ceremony. And, you know, this was during the era where they were just, 
starting to become a tradition. They weren't becoming the giant, lavishly produced things they would eventually become. But this was a fairly big Hall of Fame ceremony. This was the one where it was Bret Hart and the posthumous tribute to Eddie Guerrero. So, I mean, that's a fairly big competition, I would say, to, like, Bret Hart back in a WWE context. You kind of forget that this was going head-to-head with that. And And it it was the night that he did his Hall of Fame acceptance where he wasn't ran over by a crazy person. (laughs) And then, um... As a whole, this was... Again, this could be something you guys discussed, but this was the first really big WrestleMania weekend. Um, yeah, I mean, it was the it was the, it was the thing that literally started that tradition. Even though ROH had done it, you know, done that one show in twenty uh, in twenty in two thousand and four, um, you know, this was the one where it was so like buzzworthy and successful that everyone was like, okay, let's have a bunch of shows on WrestleMania weekend. And, and the other thing that we mentioned was. This is the last WrestleMania to ever take place in a regular-sized arena. So every year afterwards, there are just tons of people coming from all over because they were filling giant stadiums. Yeah, Dr. Keith did loads of work on F4W.Week, kind of documenting his whole experience. Obviously, being a Chicago native, he was he was around. He was the man about town, like again everywhere. Like he seemed like he was in two places at one time at, at points over the weekend. Although. Uh, he wasn't uh, where he needed to be in his seat at the show when uh, the crowd started chanting for Dr. Keith. When uh, <laughs> I think there was a super card of honor when uh, Adam Pierce screamed, is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> everyone chants Dr. Keith and he's in the he's in the he's in the bathroom taking a piss beside like I forget what wrestler he was like shooting the shit with while taking a piss in the bathroom <laughs> while the whole crowd is chanting for him. He's not there. Alan, you have a great. I actually do have that note for later. That I actually have in Doctor Keith's own words recounting the horror. Oh, was that the show? That, that actually happened. This is this is the show that, that happened. Oh, at. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, that that's well, great I'm memory. Um, no, no problem. That's, that's <laughs> actually that you remembering it and the glee in your voice was better than any resuscitation I could have done. But last couple little notes here. Uh, the Observer backed again to Meltzer. He wrote, There was a joke going around that some of the WWE were hoping the Hall of Fame would end early so they could sneak out and see Brian Danielson versus Lance Storm. Yeah, joke. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, um, after the last show where we talked about how you know how that show famously got a nearly hour-long Danielson um, strong match that went that started nearly at midnight, so it went super late, and some people were saying, we were talking about like the pros and cons and all the stuff of show going that late uh you wonder if this show would be much better we got a live report from russell jaffe who wrote to the pw torch as as the show happened at the time and he noted that this show better than our best started at 7 45 and ended at about 20 after midnight so not much better still nearly a five-hour show still a show that ended well past midnight i will just say this um Doing it on Saturday and doing it on Friday, it's a big difference because more people had to work during the day on Friday. I could just say this from my experience at Grand Slam versus going to like a show on a Saturday or a Sunday. It's just you're way more tired if you worked that day than you would be and, – and you know if you have to get up early the next morning than you would be if you you know got to just wake up whenever and uh, you know stay out late on a Saturday night. And also from a WrestleMania weekend perspective, having um – been to a few of them it generally the way it would work out and would have been the case here is that um saturday is usually very busy so and and quite an early start 
because you've probably you're bouncing around to a whole bunch of things and whereas Sunday is usually just mania so it's like eh, I can kind of have a bit of a catch up on sleep slowly kind of start the day all I've, all I all you have that day is to just get to the stadium around lunchtime or whatever whereas Saturday it's like oh I've got six shows I gotta go to today and um yeah it wasn't that many back in 2006 but I know there was like the IWA Mid-South afternoon show and then this Ring of Honor show. So, I mean, if you had those two shows that you were trying to go to the next day, you probably wouldn't have wanted to be out all night on the Friday night. So, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing that probably extended the show a little bit is a rarity for Ring of Honor at this point, which was a five-match dark match section of the show that started us off. So these are all matches that did not make the DVD Start off with Derek Dempsey defeating Pele Primo. Then we got Claudio Casanoli defeating Chad Collier. So this card was so packed, they couldn't get Collier on the show at all, and they couldn't get Casanoli a match on the show. That's how jam-packed it was. That's a pretty big match by uh, Ring of Honor Dark Match standards. Then we got Smash Bradley defeated Rhett Titus. Flash Flanagan, the poor guy, couldn't even get on the main card on this show. You know, when he's just trying to break in to Ring of Honor, he defeated Bobby Dempsey. And then your dark match main event was Allison Danger, Daisy Hayes, and Mischief defeating cheerleader Melissa, Lacey, and Rain. So the same six women we saw at the uh, six-woman mayhem match the night before, but just put into a six-woman tag. Um, Do you think that was to try to draw fans away from IWA mid-set? I'm not sure. That, that would be very interesting. I mean, part of me almost feels like, I mean, certainly that would be... I, I, you know, I'm a cynic, so I, I, I am predisposed to like that theory, Alan. But I will say, a lot of these guys were booked for earlier in the weekend. I mean, not the students, but I mean, you, you looking at this, you got two student matches, which Ring of Honor would usually have for pre-shows. But then if you look at Claudio Collier, Flash Flanagan, we're all booked for previous matches and the women. So it might have just been a case of Ring of Honor booked a lot of people for this weekend and looking at what they had scheduled for this show. Maybe they just figured, you know what? Like, we're going to give all, they're all still in town for us. We might as well give them something to do. But yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, I don't know when the the IWA Mid South show ended, but. Oh, there was a lot of, uh, the, a lot of fans left IWA Mid South early to get to ROH for. Wow. I, I would assume the start of the main show, but there was definitely tales of people darting out of that building during the. I can't remember which was the main. The top two matches were Loki versus Necro Butcher and um, Hero versus Milano Collection AT. I'm almost positive that the Milano match was went last. Almost yeah, positive. Went last. I think a lot of people darted out of the building, like or were getting like literally hit the the car running, getting ready to go, um, and then just raced across uh, to the Frontier Fieldhouse. Um, but yeah. I, they ran, at the very least, they ran extremely close up against you. Because that other Mid-South show, I don't know what time it started at, but that show is like 17 hours long. <laughs> yeah. as, as, they, as they like to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and that's probably one of the first instances ever. We talk about like the first instances of WrestleMania weekend becoming like more than WrestleMania and all these other promotions. That's probably one of the first instances of something that's become like commonplace now, which is one – wrestlers like working multiple shows on the same day for different promotions and two fans having to like decide at the ends of some shows like 
do we want to finish watching this show or do we want to like leave early so we don't miss any of the other show? Like having to do that kind of Sophie's choice in your head now when 18 shows are running during a WrestleMania week. And that's, that's commonplace now. This was probably a novel notion like, Oh shit, there's two shows at the same time. Um, but we open up the show proper. We pick up where the last show ended as usual in the milestone series, cliffhanger style with Dave Prasak calling after, after Colt Cabana as Cabana walks away from him backstage. Although strangely, as we follow Cabana, as he walks through the curtain, it becomes apparent we've shifted days. Cause like the last show, the promo kind of felt like, Oh, this is what happened at the end of the last show. Well, the promo picks up right where it left off. And we, when Cabana walks through the curtain, um, there's a full crowd in the building and he's walking into the ring. And it's clear. They just finished that six woman dark match. So it's clearly today's show. Um, Colt marches to the ring. He grabs the mic as the women clear out. Colt says that Homicide said last night that if Colt showed up tonight, that he was going to kill him. Colt says if Homicide's going to kill him, he needs to come out right now, do it right now, because this has got to end. A Ring of Honor student hits the ring to tell Colt that Homicide isn't there. Uh, Colt just says, Homicide's not here yet, into the mic, looks confused for a second, and then walks to the back. I wrote in all caps in my note, what a segment. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this feels really unnecessary. Like, like, especially knowing that we're going to get another cult interrupts to set everything up in like one segment later. The idea that we needed a whole other one of these where cult just comes out and he just kind of has to be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. I don't know what it was. Spo- I don't know what it was supposed to amount to. And also, like, I feel like it was just done so they could have a thing for the, um, you know, for for the um, segue from the cliffhanger from one show yeah. to the other, like the inter- interstitial, I guess it's whatever you'd want to call it. Like it's um, the other funny part is Colt's just like walking around holding his head because I guess that's what you do when you have a concussion. You just go around and just you hold your head all the time, like ow. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I so Alan, like I know you said you haven't really been watching the recent shows, you know, recently. But you know, one of the things I've been saying is like on the last show, it just felt like one brawl between these two too many, where it's just like, all right, let's just get to the freaking match already i almost would have just preferred they did this the night before instead of having another redundant brawl like because now it's just like redundancy on top of redundancy yeah they definitely it it was a feud which i know a lot of people were tiring of by the time they they brought it to its conclusion and then as we'll talk about later the conclusion had its its both positives and, and negatives so it's a it's a unique kind of feud in ROH history where I, I don't think it, it, it's it's got complexities. Like there's there's very good things about it. There's very annoying things about it. And I think that's kind of its legacy that it's, it just is it, it's an imperfect feud, which I suppose had it had its moments and uh, it's remembered for uh, Sort of some of the bad as well as some of the good because yeah, for, it, it yeah. felt like for every good angle they did, there was a little there, there was one that wasn't so hot. Yeah, and I'll save my final thoughts on it, you know, for the when we get to the match. But yeah, I agree with everything you just said. Cole uh, Cabana, uh, the dichotomy of um, interrupting a women's six man tag uh, in 2006 whilst walking down to the ring wearing a Kuryoku. Pr- Kuryoku Pro t-shirt, a short-lived um, 2002 Chikara-connected um, all-women's promotion that ran one show on its own and then two shows in conjunction with Chikara. 
and then they were done. So uh, it's like a, pro- a prototype of Shimmer, almost. Yeah, as as you said, Trevor, uh, Colt uh, enjoys the the free stuff. <laughs> yeah, you sent us a link to that before just to let us know what that is, and I I love like we did. This is obviously not why we booked you, but you were probably one of the only guests we could have booked on in like our universe that would have recognized that, gotten that reference, and been able to educate us about that. Honest, I I. I recognized that and I was like, Kuryoku Pro, what is that? That's a thing. And I was like, I was thinking immediately, it was like, okay, that's some obscure Japanese indie. And I was like, no, it feels like it's something else. And then as soon as I saw it was like a Quackenbush tangential women's promotion, I was like, that's what it was. <laughs> and yeah, I remember I've, I've heard wrestlers talk about it. It was just this complete um, failure of a thing uh, <laughs> previously. So, um, yeah, it was uh, some interesting matches uh, on Theradon. Interesting names all all over the place on uh, on those three shows. And that brings us to the opener. We actually got to see the main card opener, a six man mayhem match. Jack Evans defeated Ace Steel, David Christ, Jake Christ, Jimmy Jacobs, and Matt Seidel in ten minutes eight seconds when he pinned Jake Christ after he hit the six thirty. Uh, Matt, you know, this was, you know, for a, a six-person ma'am, you know, this pretty, I, I don't know, like, top-tier star stud, but in terms of, like, big-time flyers, you got Jack, you got Seidel, you got the Chris's just as they're coming to break in, you got Jacobs, you know, just starting to get hot on the lacy thing. Um, What'd you think about this? Yeah, the Crisps, like, took down the star power just a little bit, just by, I mean by, like, ROH standards at the time, because yeah. they were brand new in ROH, not, like, anything against them personally. But, like, I, um... Uh-oh, plenty against Dave Crisp, personally. <laughs> but, but, but that comment was not meant for that. <laughs> it was just... Um, but, yeah, um, the, uh... Um, this was a very, if you notice, besides Jack Evans, this was a pretty IWA Mid-South centric match in terms of the people that were featured. These were all people that made, you know, made a, a lot of their marks early on in, in IWA Mid-South. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but, um, I, I think, you know, uh, it felt like a big deal just cause you, they would come out and you saw like just how huge the crowd was. And, you know, sometimes when you get these ROH shows where there's a bigger crowd, just because of the way they do the camera setup, it, like, you can't really tell necessarily. Um, but this time you really could tell. Like, it just everything, you know, because we've seen so many shows at this Frontier Fieldhouse. And, I mean, uh, wasn't it very clear how much more packed in everybody was on this show than in any of the previous shows we'd seen? Yeah, I think so. And I was going to say to you guys, I also like watching this, you know, sometimes when you see um, – Shows where they have big crowds when they're piggybacking off of other big events. You think, oh, some of those, a lot of those fans might be like more casual fans that don't follow the product, but they're just there because there's more wrestling to see. But like, this really felt like one of the loudest and like crowds we, in Ring of Honor, not just one of the biggest. And also, like, it didn't feel like a crowd where only the first few rows knew everyone. Like, it just from the reactions, it felt like this was a crowd where like, a lot of the fans, you know, were up to date and knew what was good and like the gimmicks and were excited for certain. It wasn't like they were just dead silent for a lot of stuff. They were invested and they were anticipating the different scheduled matches. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the other thing, so, um, Alan already mentioned the, uh, the cute moment during, uh, Jimmy Jacobs entrance with Lacey and saying everyone loves her. And the other thing that I noticed was uh, Seidel during his entrance. He looks in the camera and he goes, a broken nose isn't going to stop me. And it just made me think, man, I really wish that Seidel had – they gave him one of those like nose guards, like the kind of The Undertaker wore after 
uh, Yokozuna, or was it me? But one of them sat on his face. And then where Virgil wore it at WrestleMania 8 after Sid Justice punched in his face. And Virgil gave that classic promo at WrestleMania where he said, my nose is going to be protected, but who in the world is going to protect your nose? So I, w- I would have liked Matt Seidel to uh, have one of those. And he could have actually said that exact line. That would have been really exciting for me. It, it, it would have been in keeping with Matt Seidel's <laughs> level of uh, babyface trash talk, which was always... <laughs> Always elite. Always, always Virgil inspired. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as the match, um, I, you know, it was it was messy because all these six man mayhem's are, but the crowd was so hot for it, and like you said, the star power was above average, and it was so fast paced and fun. So I thought it was a very good way to open the show. I would describe it as not a great match, but a great opener. Like, you know, they just had, like, so much fun stuff. They, they, there's, like, cute little thing at the beginning with uh, Evans and Seidel. You know, I, it's funny because those two, I never really thought of them as having real chemistry with each other in, like, the sense that they never really felt like they were in a stable together. You know, like, they never really felt like they had any sort of real connection. They were just sort of, like, nominatively together, but not didn't, – didn't, you didn't feel the chemistry between them. But they had that little, they, like – They were short-lived members of Bloodhearts together. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that's my ignorance right there. Did they have chemistry? Did they have chemistry in Dragon Gate? I I, I don't even know. If, like, it was very short lived. I don't even know if any like matches of theirs in the team made air or anything. So, yeah, but they it did it. Like th- tra- it was like a transition faction when when Blood Generation ended, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the, so they did this thing at the beginning where they were like, you know, like gonna tease fighting, and then they did their Generation Next symbol, and then they fought anyway, and they like kicked each other at the same time. Um, you know, they, they had uh, Dave, you know, Dave Chris, you know, say what you want. Like he, he did impress a little bit with some of his like knuckle, uh, like lock rope climb takeovers. And, you know, obviously Evans did his, you know, standing splashes and sentons and corkscrews and Seidel did his own standing moonsault. And then there was a spot where Evans, Jacobs and Seidel all get on various top turnbuckles and the other guys get them on their shoulders and they have a chicken fight. And then Jacobs and Seidel head scissor the crisps over the top rope, and then Evans jumps off of Ace's shoulders into a moonsault onto the pile outside. And like the chickens fight spot got over really big, but it made me wonder like, what were the guys on the bottom trying to accomplish? Because it, it seemed like they were they were just they were just holding the other guys up. Like, what were they going to do? Like, I didn't really were they like I don't know. But anyway, yeah, um, I know well, if I, someone climbed on my shoulders, I would be frozen in fear. <laughs> <laughs> they, you never know; they might be trying to give you a poison run. I'd be yeah, frozen in fear. Exactly. That's exactly. Um, that's th- what there happened. was there was a lot of convoluted thing. There's one convoluted spot in this match that I wanted to to note as well. But I will just say, Matt, since you mentioned Evans moonsault off uh, Ace's shoulders. That was um, insane to me because Jack Evans, being Jack Evans, did that without even planting his feet properly and getting himself set. He literally like moved around, and as soon as his feet were like where they needed to be, he's already moonsaulting. It was if you go back and look at it, or if you're going to watch this show after hearing us talk about it, or um, just watch the way Jack does that moonsault. Like, if it was anyone other than Jack Evans, they probably would have died. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that we've seen from Jack Evans over the past few months where it's like, if that was anyone other than Jack Evans, they would have died. Um, and we're still not sure how he didn't, but he didn't. He's here and he seems kind of okay. So good for, good for Jack. 
Um, he, he seems like I don't know the new the new Scott Steiner. Have you seen him lately, Jack Evans? Wow, no, that's a good one though. Have you guys not seen him? Not, not. No, I have not seen him where he looks like that level of jacked. Oh, oh, it's insane. Like in the last, like I don't know, month or two, he's yeah. It's uh, he is absolutely ginormous. It's crazy. Well, wow. Triple H better give him a call. <laughs> Um, but what do you think about? Well, yeah, I was I was going to mention another. Maybe maybe this was the convoluted spot Alan's talking about. I don't know. Um, So there was a thing where, like, okay, so Ace hits. Well, so so Ace Ace Steel hits kind of like this really messy Tiger Driver on Jay Crisp. Then he goes up to the top rope. Then Jimmy Jacobs stops him and crotches him. And then, like, while Ace is still on crotch on the top rope, Jacobs hits a senton onto Jay Crisp. Gets a two count. Ace is still sitting up there. So Evans comes in. He takes out Jacobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Evans comes in. He takes out Jacobs. Then he hits a springboard 450 onto him on the floor. Then Seidel comes back up top to attack Ace, but Ace, who's still sitting there, but Ace grabs him in like a, I guess what would you call the widow's peak kind of or what? I, I don't even know. And he gives yeah. Jake and then That's exactly what Lenny Leonard called us. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate yeah. it as a, as a Victoria. Fan. Yeah, yeah. What's what's another name for that move? Um, um the uh, oh god. Um, See, Widow's Peak's the best one. Um, yeah, there is another name, but yeah. we'll just have to go Widow's Peak. What was um? There was was it? There was some, what did um? Did Quiet Storm do a move like that? Yeah, yeah but it, yeah. um, there was yeah, Quiet Storm did it. There is another. Yeah, there is another person did it, but yeah, yeah, there is another name. It's escaping me. So so then so then so Ace has Seidel on the Widow's Peak. Then Dave Chris comes up and Ace hits a combination Widow's Peak on Seidel, Ace Crusher on Dave Crisp, and leg drop onto Jake Crisp. All at the same time, the crowd obviously is going to go nuts. This crowd's going to go nuts for that one. So I assume that was what you were talking about, Alan. Um, am it I? It was indeed um, the most eye-rolly convoluted setup to a spot that I was groaning and be like, oh, this is terrible, which turned into when it actually was executed and landed me going, that was the best spot I've ever seen. That was amazing. <laughs> but, oh my God. Yeah, I think that's what you get from these matches. It's like it that kind so of stuff. Satisfying when he act- it, was when he, it was when I realized he landed the leg drop, and it was a damn fine leg drop as well, to be credit to Ace. Um but it made it all so worth it. Um, <laughs> but I will say that <laughs> um, as convoluted as this match was at times, the execution for the most part and just like how kind of well the match kind of flowed and kind of came together and ended on the right note, having seen some like uh, game changer wrestling and other independent scramble matches of recent vintage with the current independent scene. This match was like watching um, Ric Flair against uh, Dory Funk. <laughs> it was like the the polish on this compared to some of the slop that gets served up in. Uh, and don't get me wrong, you get you, you got sloppy scramble style matches back in those days too. But um, it seems it's more the uh, norm in this generation than it was back then. I think there was yeah. a bit more uh, pride in you know. Keep it holding the match together back then than there 
than there is now. It's funny because, you know, Trevor, you've made the observation that, like, high flyers have gotten more precise and more controlled in the years since, you know, this era. But, yeah, there is, like, that other side of it where, like, you know, yeah, quality quality cool. control on the indies <laughs> has gone down a little bit, um, too. But, like, like I mentioned, like, this match, like... Like you said, like there, this you know it does have you know some some quality to it, and you know some convoluted stuff, some messy stuff, but just the crowd was so into it, like that. I think it just made it such a really fun opener. And at the end, um, when Evans leaves and he says he's going to be gone in three for three months in Dragon Gate, he says he's going to return quote bigger, badder, and better than ever. And I guess he actually was sixteen years too early on that because now he's really bigger, better, and better apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he knew he was going over to the old mid breath gym and. In, uh, in in Japan, so uh, he, he assumed he did. I think he did come back a, a decent amount bigger for for Jack at that point, uh, um, having trained over there. But um, just the the one other thing I just wanted to note um, with in in terms of comparing um, like the modern version of this match to what it was in two thousand six. Do you know what I think a big part of the difference is? Is that no one in this match was worried about okay i need to make sure this next spot that i'm doing is is looks the way i want it to because i want the gift to look good uh, because <laughs> that's a good point gifts weren't a thing back then so I, like I their only say, I, oh sorry their on. only concern was just the match holistically kind of coming together and and being a good match for the fans in the crowd and the fans watching at home. Whereas I think a lot of really young wrestlers on the Indies aren't actually approaching their matches holistically and are just approaching each spot and being like, okay, I, this is my chance for this gift. This is my chance for this gift. And it's just a whole load of things just sellotaped together. Yeah. I, I, that is an excellent point. That's a point I was going to make um, about when you were talking about that. That's what came to mind is the idea that, yeah, I, I feel like the big difference between like the scrambles today and the scrambles back then, not to sound like a grumpy old man, is, is just that scrambles back in this time, like there was big spots, but it was much more just about pace and like, can you keep it up the whole way and get everyone involved and just, you know, bang, 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 with maybe a couple like over the top kind of really, you build to like really crazy choreographed spots. Like in this match, you would like, you guys have already mentioned the three way like chicken fight, and then the big A Steel hits 18 moves on 18 guys at the same time spot. And where now it feels like, and back then that those were like the cherries on top of like this crazy fast paced match. Now it feels like scrambles today, those big set piece kind of choreographed spots are the whole point of the match like that, like, like you were saying, Alan, like, cause they're so gifable and that's what people are thinking about. Those are the things that are going to get me attention. It's like, those are the only things the wrestlers really sometimes focus on in those matches. And also they become even more convoluted. Cause like, well, how do we one up these kind of spots that have been done for decades? So now they're getting to the point where like, they sometimes, some of these spots sometimes take like, See, it feels like it takes like 45 seconds to set up one spot. And, you know, people will talk about their opponents have to just stand there and wait around for it to happen. I mean, there was a very recent one where people complained about that and they're getting more and more like intricate. Like, yeah, it's just this idea of how do we create rather than like 10 minutes of action that just blows your mind from bell to bell. It's like, how do we create one spot that's just going to get shared on social media? But, uh, Alan, do you have any other thoughts about the match? I mean, you already shared some, but... It was kind of more conversational. So was there anything else about this match you wanted to mention? 
Um, not a huge amount about the match itself. I thought it was a good performance for Jack kind of to send him off to Japan. I thought not just getting the win, but he just looked very good in general throughout the match. Um, I think uh, for Jimmy, it was probably a match where, uh, you know, he had the one spot right at the end character wise where he got to get over the like someone went after Lacey and he just flipped his lid. So that was like the one kind of character thing he got to do. But as a whole, this wasn't probably as much serving his new character and storyline as, as some other stuff he would do after this. And and the match that he had the night before, I know you haven't, you haven't seen that, but that, that was a lot, a lot about his, well, he was, he was, he was placed in cause BJ hurt his ankle. So he was placed into a three way with Joe and Christopher Daniels. So he got to do a lot of character work in that match. Okay. And I, something that hit me watching this is, particularly kind of like having watched the 2005 shows recently that you guys have been covering. It's like, I, I could be wrong, but is, is Jimmy Jacobs the first? Cause the fans of like, obviously the nineties, ECW fans of early two thousands weren't exactly like a baby, a, a baby face or a, a character wasn't going to become popular by like expressing their feelings, you know? And it was more of a, you know, like there was more of a macho kind of thing to, um, who would get over as baby faces and one, and whatnot, like kind of going all the way back to like your, your Tommy dreamer pile driving Beulah and ECW and doing the pose and the crowd just going crazy. So it was like you, that era of, angry young men um, seeing a certain thing for what they wanted in their characters that would be over with them. And Jimmy Jacobs emo guy that um, writes songs about his, uh, the, the girl he, he really wants to just cuddle with um, is like probably one of the first instances I can think of as a completely different style of non macho character getting over to a hardcore wrestling crowd um am am i forgetting some other examples or does that feel because like nowadays like that's not not specifically characters like that but i mean like you for probably the the last 10 years we've had all kinds of different characters displaying all kinds of different personalities and emotions and quirks that um would get over with the, the the modern uh fans but and like kind of you're more like girl rah rah macho guy would be less likely to to get over um so yeah i, I feel like probably goes without saying jimmy jacobs in this character was a, a bit of a trendsetter yeah well it's interesting because like at the beginning of that character um there's a little bit more of a darker side to it a little more like like he felt like you know this like creepy stalker element at least with modern eyes you know like the, the cuz he made a video before he made the music video, there was another video that they, that he made on his own that they included on a DVD where he like has, you know, he has like pictures with Lacey and he's like, you know, just being like really creepy. And I remember watching it being like, only wrestling fans would take this character and like think of him as a sympathetic baby face. I think as things have gone on, his performance has made him more sympathetic and a little bit less creepy. Um, so I think, it, you know, it kind of works. Um, but, you know, early on, I think it was kind of in line with the sort of thing that like weird wrestling fans might have got taken to, like the 
uh, you know, unrequited love, but it, but it was actually more really rooted in lust, you know, because like in some of the way he would play it early on was like, you know, he would say, oh, I love you, Lacey, but then he would just act like super horny, like if he looked at her feet, you know, like stuff like that. So it was yeah, like... I also wasn't really thinking of it from, from those angles at all. I yeah. was thinking more just the uh, uh, sensitive songwriter type rather than the, the extra kind of skeevy stuff. Which, yeah, but but he does, temp, he does temper that a bit. Although on the next show, on the next show, there is an angle that sort of goes more in that line where she like, it's like, oh, if you win this match, you'll get to see me with my shirt off, which, is, you know, is not really like what, you know, love necessarily. I mean, I guess it could be, I guess. I don't know. Who am I to judge? What? I should probably just stop talking now. But you get what I'm saying. I do feel that, like, if you put this Jimmy Jacobs character in, in like, 1996 ECW Arena or um, a 2001 CZW show or, or even a 2003 ROH show, like, I feel like he'd probably get booed out of the building and had all manner of horrible stuff uh, yelled at him by yeah. guys in the crowd. Not not that not that these crowds were above yelling all kinds of horrible stuff at wrestlers. But yes, I get your point and I th- and I think that the way he's like he's his character evolves even already is by this point I think kind of speaks to what you're saying. Yeah. And um going back to the uh the six person match uh, the only thoughts I have to add cuz you guys did a good job is I thought it was a good match I thought it was better a little bit better than the six man mams nor I mean it seemed pretty patterned for a while but you had those couple big intricate spots and it really seemed like the crowd was so into this match that kind of raised the guys games and they seemed kind of pumped by it and yeah you guys covered most of the big spots you, you would think Ace would be the odd man out in a match like this and he was but he actually was kind of the highlight like he just crushed guys with lariats like the Christs and that got a big pop. He did that big spot near the end. He, he, he was actually pretty good in this. And Jack Evans, of course, is usually great. Jack Evans, you know, he did a spot there. He took a bump in this match where uh, Jacobs throws him into the guardrail and Jack takes a bump. I can only describe as him going into the crowd and falling back out of the crowd all in one fluid motion, like just, Oh, like it was really cool. But yeah, so that was that crowd was very into this match. Um, after the match, crowd gives everyone a standing ovation, actually, and Jack poses on the turnbuckle, gets the crowd the chant Ring of Honor, and that's when, as Matt said earlier, he gets he tells everyone he's going to Dragon Gate, well, tells the, the, the cameraman, not everybody doesn't get on the house mic, and says he's going to come back to Ring of Honor, bigger, better, and better. And then we get ring announcer Bobby Cruz introducing Jim Cornette, who comes to the ring holding his baseball bat, Velma Lou, as he has informed us a couple shows ago. That's what it's called. Uh, James, James thought that uh, he, the show he saw last night was good. The crowd he saw last night was good. But then he saw this crowd, and this is great. Cornette says he just call him James. <laughs> he did. But you know what? Because <laughs> Trevor is his – it's his grand name. So he talks like that about about James. Sometimes, I, you know, what I've been doing too much writing lately, and one thing I, I realized with writing is sometimes you use the same, like, last name or first name too often, so I think I got into the mode writing my notes here, that I was like, oh, yeah, looking back, like, yeah, who calls him James? But looking at my notes, the, 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 he, that will be the only James we see here, but... Um, old Jamie Cornette. <laughs> old Jimmy Jam Cornette. Um, Jim thought that, okay, yeah, I mentioned the crowd, Cornette says he's proud to be part of Ring of Honor. He says only one thing marred the event last night, and that's the hardcore peep show wrestlers busting in on this place. Cornette recaps what happened with Chris Hero putting him in an arm bar. Cornette hitting Necro Butcher with the bat. 
Cornette then has the spotlight guy shine a light on Adam Pierce, who's standing at the back of the building. And Cornette says, tonight, Adam has the job of watching the entrances for CZW wrestlers. Cornette then starts to transition to another topic, but is almost immediately interrupted by Colt Cabana, who gets a big reaction. Uh, Jim says, Colt shouldn't even be in the building tonight. Colt tells Cornette that his issue with homicide has to end tonight, and the only way he's ever going to have peace is if Cornette sanctions an official match between him and homicide tonight, but not just any match, has to be here in his hometown, a Chicago street fight. Huge reaction for him mentioning that to the crowd. Um, Cornette says Colt has a broken nose, his eye is screwed up, he has a concussion, his doctor says he shouldn't even be here tonight, and yet he wants to fight the guy who screwed up his face to begin with like that. Um, Cornette says he admires guys with guts, gives him the match. Colt says Jim's not going to be responsible for what he does to Homicide tonight. Colt leaves, and then Cornette goes back to his last piece of business, saying he needs to call a young man out to the ring, delirious. Another big pop. I thought he was, I thought he was a young lizard. (laughs) <laughs> um, well, well, this this actually ties into a a note I had for during uh, Delirious's match, where uh, Lenny Leonard just off just he's just talking about Delirious and like his popularity and just says everybody loves Delirious. He's a real great guy. <laughs> and <I was> like, <laughs> a real great guy. And and he's called he's called a young man and a great guy all in like yeah, the same segment. Isn't he like some kind of lizard creature that can't communicate with people? That's just running around like a maniac. No, he's a, no, he's just a solid dude. That's his gimmick. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love this idea. Like, yeah, I wrote that in my notes too. Like this idea, like that threw me off so much. Like Leonard, like like he, like he acted almost like you know you hang backstage with Delirious. You know, he's just a great guy. Where it's like he didn't say the hang backstage part, but he really acted like that was the vibe. Yeah. And it's like in storyline right now, he doesn't speak English like or any language <laughs> that can be understood by human beings. Like he's a w- visceral wild lizard. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, anyway, Delirious was very over at this time, so he gets a big pop when he comes out. He even gets a few streamers once he hits the ring, which is funny that some fans who were probably holding those streamers for other things were like, I can't wait. I've got to throw him for Delirious in one of these early segments. Um, Delirious walks in circles around Cornette, streamer in his mouth, other streamers getting tangled around him and Cornette. Eventually, he does stop. Cornette puts over Delirious, but tells him he's forgetting only one component of wrestling, and that's that the, he's forgetting to win. He says, you've won some tag matches, but you've never won a singles match here in Ring of Honor. Jim says he wants to give the people what they want. They want to see Delirious, but Jim thinks for Delirious to go to the next level, he needs to have something on the line. He's giving him the chance right now to challenge anyone on the Ring of Honor roster for a match right here, right now. But if he doesn't beat them, he's off the Ring of Honor roster altogether. Cornette then hands Delirious the mic. And after a bunch of classic delirious mumbling and gibberish that you can't understand, he does the he does the Julius smokes blah blah, and then says Ricky Reyes. Quarant asks Delirious if he wants Ricky Reyes, the guy with the dragon sleeper no one has broken out of. Delirious responds yes in his own delirious way, and so Cornet introduces Ricky Reyes. That brings us to wait, wait, wait. Got to comment on the. I got to comment one thing on the promo. You know, I haven't been so high on Cornette's promos lately, but this kept the uh, this kept the you know the weird like CZW like tonally off aspects of his promo to a minimum. And he does he says something so cutely folksy and charming and grandma like that I couldn't help but love it. It's when Delirious comes out and he starts walking in circles around Cornette and Cornette says, If you don't slow down, you're gonna turn into butter. And I was just like, what a what a great grandma line by Jim Cornette. Aw. Just warm my heart. 
And yeah, <laughs> it's weird though. Like, like just thinking like, like you could, you then you could use that in any situation. Like you just see a guy run. Like I want to see someone running down the street. I'm just going to yell at them. You're going to turn to butter if you keep running. Like, well, the idea is that he's going in circles and like whip, yeah, uh, whipping yeah. and churning and you know, I'll have to go to um like a carousel at a playground, man. A, a carousel, a carousel that's going way too fast. <laughs> you mess up the brakes or something, and you just or like you 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 make the setting, you sabotage the setting just so you could use that line, and then you go to jail, and it becomes an international scandal of a guy who messed with a children's ride just so he could say a folksy line. The uh, Homer Simpson uh, running around on the ground. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Gimmick. That, that, that might be the best uh, way to turn into butter. That's right. <laughs> so that actually brings us to Delirious defeating Ricky Reyes with Julius Smokes in his corner via submission. Six minutes, 19 seconds, seconds 619. Booyaka. Uh, when he made him tap out to the Cobra Clutch, Alan, uh, I know you haven't been following, obviously you have your memory, but the recent Ring of Honor, but this was, you know, Delirious was just starting to gain steam, and this was his, like, yeah, his first big singles win, and, like, he would start getting pushed more from here on out, but what did you think about this match? Obviously not that meaty of a match, but a moment for Delirious. Yeah, it absolutely was, and uh, Delirious was getting super popular at this point. You, you guys mentioned on a show, I, I listened from 05 recently, that, like, it was kind of, I forget what match it was. I think it was one of the tags with, um, oh, I can't remember. Exactly. She- Shelly against Generation Next. Yeah, it was that one. Exactly. And that you talked about how it might be like peak entertainment delirious, but I think peak kind of popularity and push delirious was starting here and would come over the next few months. And I think he really, his ultimate peak comes later in the year when he, uh, um, gets to go kind of head on with Danielson in a um, in a big elimination match. I think they have towards the end of the year. So uh, yeah, uh, he he was doing real well and gaining a, a grand swell of support. Super over babyface and uh, a good entertaining wrestler who had a good entertaining simple wrestling match with a simple story and a hot crowd that were invested in and. It didn't overstay its welcome, and I have absolutely nothing bad to say about this match whatsoever. Ricky Reyes did a solid professional job, and it's like sometimes like the the the, the joke of oh, two professionals having a professional match is is used as a kind of um, tongue in cheek way of uh, this. It was actually kind of like nothing to write home about, but like when it is that in front of a crowd that are really appreciating it, it very enjoyable to watch and this was this was that um i i do have a question for you guys uh having seen the recent shows was this the first time delirious used the cobra stretch in my memory it was and it was like his first time busting this out and it leading to his first win and then kind of becomes his his big finisher from that point on I, I'm not sure if it's the first time. I am it very mild might have been, but I definitely was going to ask Matt, like, because Matt's the one I rely on for memory issues, which is kind of unfair. But I was definitely going to say this has got to be the first time he's won a match with it, at least, and probably the first time he's used it in Ring of Honor. I mean, it's the first time he's won a match, so, <laughs> so I mean, that's easy. Um, he also had never been, I don't think, 
on an ROH main show on the East Coast before because I remember being like, oh, maybe so now we'll actually get to see Delirious live. And yeah, and he, and he was on the next show in Philly and then, you know, then he gets some big matches on the East Coast. But I think, you know, like this is like, this is not just a storyline where they're starting to push Delirious more. Like he actually gets used much more after this. Like, so when you say he was getting popular, like only on these Midwest shows, he was not on any of the shows out East. Um, That's wild. I didn't think of that. Yeah. I mean, unless he was on some pre-shows or some shows like a long time earlier, but definitely not during the time I'd been going. Um, he hadn't been. And so, like, this was... Had Seidel done a lot of East Coast? Because you would have thought they'd have traveled together. Well, Seidel definitely started getting pushed first. So, yeah, Seidel started coming to the East Coast more like, I think around, like, Joe versus Kobashi time, you started seeing him out on the East Coast. And, you know, obviously then he would be in Steel Cage Warfare and, and you know, teaming with uh, with AJ. So, yeah, so he had already definitely over the past, like, seven months, six or seven months prior, has been coming to the East Coast. I don't really... super awkward when he sets out those drives and Delirious just sitting there on the side of the road. I get... Maybe maybe he drove with Daisy Hayes, although, thinking back, I'm not sure if they brought Daisy out to the East Coast during this period either, actually. He might have been flown, to be honest. Yeah. At, could, that, at that point in time. Could have been. Um, but now, you know, now Delirious will start coming. How long of a drive would it be from St. Louis to... Um like Philadelphia. Oh, hours and hours and hours. I, uh, you know, I've never. Light would make a difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huge difference. Yeah, I've never done that drive, but it's a, it's a very, very, very long distance. Yeah. Um. But um. Yeah. So a few, a couple things I noticed here was just like, like Reyes seemed very ready to go. Cornette was like, "Oh, Ricky!" Like or delirious. Like Ricky Reyes come out. Ricky was like, I guess he was like standing right by the entrance. I guess he anticipated it. He was all dressed up, ready to go wet like he was totally ready to go um so but i agree with you about the match alan like you know they what they didn't try to have some great match they just they told the storyline effectively the only thing that like the you know that i noted that you know would have been weird there was a spot where smokes gets involved with a back rake and delirious knocks him down with a forearm and 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 i was thinking like this is one of the things about roh because like the referees didn't really take the rules that seriously despite the ROH gimmick and so they didn't like disqualify people and like they should have disqualified Reyes for his manager getting physical right in front of him and the thing is like if the ref did take that seriously, that would be Delirious's win right there. He would have gotten his uh, his spot. It wouldn't have been wouldn't it have been messed up like if you're just thinking about it in kayfabe terms for Delirious to just completely lose his roster spot after a guy interfered against him in the match right in front of the referee and the referee just didn't do anything about it. Like, kind of crazy. Um, also, I, I had to look up because I just had to know because it's the kind of thing that would drive me crazy. To drive from St. Louis to Philadelphia is 14 and a half hours long, according to Google. So, yeah, that would be <laughs> qu- quite a haul. Yeah, Seidel had probably earned the flight when it would have saved him uh, that much uh, of an arduous journey. But yeah, I, I thought this match was average. But you know, it's not about the like Alan said, the professional wrestling match. I thought obviously this match isn't about the wrestling; it's about the moment for Delirious. You know, so you get Delirious running wild, then you get Reyes controlling for a couple of minutes where it kind of slows down in Reyes style, and then get a fairly hot last one or two minutes with some big moves. The question I have is, you know, the big thing they were selling is, you know, Ricky Reyes is, you know, he, he's not unbeaten, but his that dragon sleeper, you heard Cornette just mention it, you know, no one can break it. And in this match, um, Delirious gets put into that dragon sleeper three times. The first time he makes the ropes. The second time he escapes by climbing the turnbuckles and kind of kicking off them. And the third time he turns Reyes over 
while he's in it with like a kind of a snapmare. So do any of those count as Delirious being the first to break the Dragon Sleeper and Ring of Honor? Because well, it, it'd be funny if that if the, the, that was the moment. One of those was the moment like. Because they, they were really building this up as like, oh, who can, you know, Ares can't get out of it, but yet somehow Delirious gets put in it three times and survives every single time. Yeah, if I was more invested in the whole Reyes uh, Dragon Sleeper thing, I would have been more annoyed by that. Like the fact that they didn't just build up to one big moment where Delirious gets out of it instead of just having him do it kind of like, not casually, but like not so dramatically a bunch of times. Like, I, 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 but I don't care, so it's fine. Yes, but anyway, big moment for Delirious, big win, and like you guys mentioned, this is kind of like a, le- a legit thing, not just a storyline, because yeah, the- Delirious is now in the time-honored, ring of honor tradition of a lot of times well, Gabe will book people from the Midwest, and you kind of will only get booked for the Midwest shows until you really reach a certain level in his eye, and this is kind of Delirious getting the nod of like, okay, you're over enough, you're going to get the Nigel McGuinness, you know, Matt Seidel, you know, what Jimmy Jacobs is about to be getting now again, that treatment of you, you're going to get booked everywhere. So nice moment for him. That brings us to Masato Yoshino and the embassy of Alex Shelley and Jimmy Rave scored to the ring by Prince Nana, defeating do fixer of Dragon Kid, Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito in 16 minutes, 14 seconds when Rave pinned Horiguchi after he hit the greetings from Ghana. Um, before I get to the match, we had a PW Torch live report from uh, Jay Sin, is his name, J-S-I-N, and he wrote a note that I thought was funny. He wrote, a sickening amount of toilet paper was thrown tonight. There were actual multi-packs of toilet paper still wrapped thrown in. I'm just wondering what fans, like, the whole point of the, of the throwing the toilet paper is the idea that, like, it's a play off the streamers. Yes, they are. They are the anti-streamer. Yes. Yeah. They have some fan. I just imagine. I, I didn't notice it watching, but like the fan who brought like a four pack and didn't unwrap them. So it's just like a brick of toilet paper. Like, yeah, this is what I'm like. Did they do that on purpose as a joke or did they just not get like, yeah, you just throw a crate of toilet paper in there. It doesn't matter. That That's the point, isn't it? Like, some people are just not. Some people are just not smart. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe it was just really well wrapped toilet paper and he was trying to rip it open and it was like the moment was passing and he was like, God fuck it, and he just threw the whole thing in. God damn it, he just throws it in. Um, um, on the subject of the toilet paper, uh I hope you guys uh are you guys baseball fans? Uh so I'm a very casual baseball fan. I would say I am not particularly, but I know of the sport and how it works. <laughs> okay, well uh I I'm obviously being here in Ireland, not a huge baseball fan either, but uh, um, I hope there was some appreciation for the uh, the form and velocity on those toilet roll pitches back to the crowd from Masada Yoshino. Oh, yes. A, a highly decorated, high-quality baseball player who, um, in the uh, Dragon Gate uh, cage matches, which... Um, the like hair mask cage matches that they usually do once a year where they've kind of, I'm sure you've seen gifts and stuff over the years where they've gotten more ridiculous year by year in terms of different things that are done with the, the different factions running interference, like to stop guys skating the cage because they're always like escape the flag stuff. So you'll have like, guys coming out with tennis rackets, hitting tennis balls at people. You'll have people just throwing a pie in someone's face to as they're about to get the flag, things like that. But Masai Yoshino's trademark every time was he would uh, he, he would get whatever balls and he would just be like throwing them like a baseball player, knocking guys off the cage, and just yeah, it was it was always tremendous. He's uh, 
He's got quite the arm on him, and he was making some fans pay uh, with these toilet rolls. We got to make sure we have you on anytime there are Dragon Gate guys on the show because you are just a fountain of knowledge about that. Um. So as far as the match, I would say this was like two matches, and sometimes when a match seems like two completely different matches kind of sewn together, I don't like it. I actually like this a lot, even partly because of that, because I thought this was a good showcase of both the Ring of Honor guys and the Dragon Gate guys' skill sets here. Um, The first half to two-thirds of this match is much more, I would say, in the rave Shelly wheelhouse, where it's decent level of action, but not quite a breakneck pace. You get a little bit of the healing, you get a bit, a tiny bit, just a little bit of the embassy goofiness that they're really good at, with like at one point, Shelly, you know, needs to be consoled in his corner, get a hug. But then after Horiguchi makes a hot tag at one point after he sells for a while, we get the final few minutes, which basically try to replicate some of the vibes of the final few minutes of the previous night's famous Dragon Gate six-man. And obviously this isn't going to be on that level, but I thought everyone did a really good job of hitting some of those same vibes, some of those same notes, even Shelly and Rave, you know, who were not Dragon Gate regulars, and they all had the crowd going nuts by the end. Um, We also talked on the last show about how so many people hyped the character work of the Dragon Gate guys in the six-man tag. And I think Matt and I found it a little overstayed just because that match was so quick. You, you maybe didn't get to see quite as much of their charisma, although you did see some. I think this match is somewhat slower pace. Let them show off that charisma way more. Like, it's not even huge things. It's just they have a willingness for a place that, you know, they've never been before except this weekend to, like, play along with what's happening. Like, Yoshino and Saito both work with the toilet paper. Like, they will throw it at each other during the match. Horiguchi, I think, gets to show off on this night even better than the night before. His jo- his ability to be a really good sympathetic babyface in peril. And even the stuff, again, they mentioned the night before about how, you know, that match was all built around making Dragon Kid the star. I noticed that even more on this night where I felt like you watch Dragon Kid's uses in, in this match and it's really smart where he only comes in in these little bursts. But when he's in, it's almost always to do something really big and really crowd pleasing like he's like the perfect little pinch of spice on the meal where he's not the bulk of the meal but he's like the thing you remember from the meal and the star of the show and i would actually say alex shell i would end by saying is the bulk of the meal like he's not the star of the match you know dragon gate and the dragon i mean dragon kit and the dragon gate guys in, in general are the star but i would say he's the mvp like he holds a surprising amount of this match like he wrestles a surprising amount of this i would say he's like the glue that holds it together if there was a through the years award that for like most underrated, if we just did awards for the first quarter of 2006, just like I was, I, I think I said last year, if we did awards for the first quarter of 2005, I would have put Jack Evans at like number three for rest of the year. Like if we did the quarterly awards for the first of the quarter of 2006, Alex Shelley would be in my most underrated because he'd get my vote hands down. He's um apart from the Danielson match, he's not being put in prominent positions, but and he's not in these amazing match of the year contenders, but night in and night out, he is so good. He's so versatile. He can do the comedy. He can do the wrestling. He can be a stooge. He can have the big serious match. He can be flashy, but he also has the fundamentals. Like, I just feel like he is such a good utility guy at this point, and I really appreciate him in a match like this. So I thought this was a very good match, like a three and a half to three and three quarter star match. Really fun last few minutes, but I really enjoyed the whole thing. Um, Matt, what did you think about it? Yeah, I think I liked this match even more than you did. I um, I think this was an easy four star match. Um, you know, maybe more. I I uh, I thought it. You know, it, at least in terms of fun, 
it might be my match of the night. Like, I'm not saying it was like the best wrestling match of the night, but like, I might have enjoyed it as much as any match on this whole show. I, I agree with you. Shelly was the standout. I thought he was as good as any of the Dragon Gate guys. But you know, I so like you said, this was like two separate matches. But I just sort of saw it as like a really good mix of the American style heel work and then that spectacular Dragon Gate, you know, breakneck pace near the end. And I thought, you know, Shelly and even Rave, you know, like really, you know, held up their ends. They did some really cool impact spots, you know, and obviously it was really fun to see Yoshino get to be like more um, overtly heelish in this match, teaming with the embassy, you know, because you saw a little flurries of that the night before, but really neither team the night before were like really heels, you know, like even though, even though blood generation was technically positioned that way, you know, this time Yoshino kind of got to just enjoy being a heel and obviously Dragon Kid and, you know, Horiguchi are just like really great baby faces. So, and then, so, you know, the, the early part of the match was so much fun with the, with Shelly and Rave doing their, especially Shelly doing what they normally do. And then that, that last part of the match was just so exciting and fun. And I just think this match had, you know, no, you know, no filler. It was just fun the whole way. You know, the crowd ate it up. Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't as spectacular or like revelatory as the, you know, the, the quote real Dragon Gate 6 man, but oh my god, it was so much fun. I, I really like this a lot. It's one of my favorite ROH matches of 2006 so far. And Alan, I'm wondering what you think, especially because, um, one, you know a ton about Dragon Gate, but two, like, I've, one thing I really noticed watching this show to tip my hand a tiny bit is like, you know, what, the, the Dragon Gate 6 on the last show, we covered it extensively. Obviously, it's an amazing match, but one of the only negatives about that match is I feel like, all on this triple shot, there was a lot of really good Dragon Gate matches, like of different kinds, on this triple shot, and they all kind of get lost in the shadows. Like no one talks about this match, or I think even the other match that's coming up later on the show, just because when you think Dragon Gate this weekend, you think of one match, but there was a lot of good stuff I think on on these shows from them. Yeah, oh yeah, for me, like so much of the stuff they did this weekend made a huge imprint on me, and, and that's why I became such a huge Dragon Gate fan after this. Like I was already I had already very much dipped my toes in the water and was becoming a big fan, but like I just was off to the races after this point. And it was because I got so much more out of their performance that weekend other than just the one big match. And and with future WrestleMania weekends it was always like I would look to see all the different matches that were made for for the Dragon Gate guys, and I'd be circling them and being like, oh yeah, that looks amazing. And then it'd be like, I'd have my wish list on what I'd want when the talent would be announced. And um, so, yeah, it, it, I get what you're saying because I do think on a, a broader level, it is probably a, the one match is the one that's kind of thought of the most. But for me, I would say certainly the two matches on this show had a, a huge impact on me and left a huge imprint on me and uh this match in particular um i'm i'm glad both of you guys liked it uh, a ton but matt hearing just you rave about it excuse the pun um has really warmed my heart because that's how i've always felt about this match i just think it's one of my it would probably a, be a, a desert island comp tape match for me just because you know it will always make you smile there's always things in it you forget happens just so much happens at this match from an action point of view a fun point of view a, a character point of view like i've watched it so many times and i still like i totally forgot about it 
Yoshino just absolutely beaming Saito with the toilet roll at the start of the match when Saito totally doesn't see it coming. And then Prince Nana goes off to Yoshino and goes, oh, I like you. You're good. You're good. And Yoshino nodding in appreciation. And then Saito (laughs) knows it completely. But like five minutes later, the callback where he he pulls out a toilet roll just (laughs) nails Yoshino angrily with it. Um, but, uh, so I'm probably going to talk a lot about this match. So just interject and cut me off if, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no if I talk for an hour here. I'm going to film, I'm going to fill my mouth with jelly candy. So just cause I know I won't have to talk for a while. <laughs> so, uh, last year, um, last summer, Masadi Yoshino retired and it was, uh, one of the, the bigger deals in, in Dragon Gate history. And, uh, to um to celebrate that fact and celebrate his career i did like a whole bunch of audio um on masari oshino interviewed lots of different people that had um been involved with him during his career and i i think my favorite thing i got to do as part of that was interviewing alex shelley um because alex shelley doesn't do a lot of interviews he's super private um i've always had a really good relationship from with him but um, I knew from an early stage when I, I tried to get him to do some podcasts and stuff that it just wasn't something he wanted to do. So I never really pressured him into it. Um, but this was one that he wanted to do, but it was on the kind of understanding that he just wanted to talk about Yoshino. He didn't want it to be about himself. And uh, it was awesome. It was some of my favorite audio I've ever done. And this match got quite a bit of discussion on that interview and he adores this match he is it's like one of his favorite memories of of his time in in roh and and he talked about how um him and jimmy rave were both such huge dragon gate fans um and jimmy rave did get to go to dragon gate tours after this shelly never did a dragon gate tour himself but he has had so much interaction with various guys on the Dragon Gate roster over the years. He considers Naruki Doi someone who he's very close to in pro wrestling. Um, like with Dragon Gate guys coming to TNA and stuff like that, there would have been a a, a connection there. Uh, also, this ROH stuff, but um, uh, they had huge um excitement for this match they they pestered gabe in just the before the cards were put together to to do this match and they they got their wish and uh then it was just a case of then they started like bickering with each other because it was like they just both wanted to just spend as much time in the possible in the match working with the different guys and and stuff like this so but it, it all just came together so beautifully and i think it speaks to like you said, Trevor, how versatile Shelley is, but also Rave. I think people don't give Rave because he, he's kind of thought of as this old school uh, heel shtick worker. But like that's a guy that like put him in any kind of X division or uh, a Dragon Gate situation. Like never would look out of place, like always kept things moving at a, a good pace and could, he was never getting left behind, you know, and he was still able to get his character across in the ways he needed to. Um, th- there were so many things in, in this match that were um, like a, a real good example is 
uh, rave the um, uh, gonorrhea move that he does, which he took from Masadi Oshino as the, the lightning spiral. Uh, they made sure to do those two moves in sync with each other during this match and, and then pointed at each other. It was great. Cool moment. Um, Shelly and Yoshino during the entrance, like Shelly was, um, uh, Shelly was like really excited. You could see coming through the curtain and he's, he slaps Yoshino and like gets him to do the double blood generation pose with him. And Yoshino is all about that. And, uh, um, yeah, just the, the ability to blend a their characters and what they were doing with the embassy into a Dragon Gate match. And this was like, if you think of a Dragon Gate match as being what you got the night before. OK, it's not necessarily that. But this is absolutely a Dragon Gate match on like fourth match in the show on a Cork and Hall. You know, it's not like the main event, but it's like your first match after intermission or your first or your last match going into intermission it's absolutely a high level version of that kind of a match this wouldn't have been out of place on a dragon gate japan show whatsoever um everyone looked awesome in it the two fixer guys was great gank the worker genki was tremendous i loved uh him coming out with his please call me h-a-g-e sign um that was great his little cowboy hat how can you not love that um and um dragon kid like you said he was off the charts they really utilized him uh so well over the course of of that weekend and as kind of almost like the mascot of dragon gate so to speak in, in terms of like for you know like at that time like you know you just he's got the ultimo style mask he's he's he is dragon kid the promotion is dragon gate it's right there in the name so he's kind of he's kind of symbolic of the promotion and and they let that symbol shine with what they how they used him over, over the course of that week um uh, but yeah, just really good stuff. Um, I, I have to point out, um, Alex Shelley, uh, most people wouldn't have known or noticed him doing this, but he's not going to sneak it past me. All the way during this embassy run, he was in full-on, and it was so evident in this match, he was in full-on uh, cribbing brother Yashi mode. Um, <laughs> Shelley watched a uh, that guy watched so much wrestling. Like it's crazy. He, he was a DVD VR poster under a different name and, and he'd be downloading all the Japanese wrestling stuff. And um, he was watching a ton of all Japan and uh, super into brother Yashi and like all his like little taunts and um, his trash talk, all brother Yashi stuff. And uh, like just the way he comes out during his entrance where just like you, yeah, so many little brother Yashi things he's doing. Um, but uh, also he's just way better as a, a wrestler than brother Yashi, and I love brother Yashi, so it it, it kind of it works well. But that was, that was the thing about Chevy is he'd he'd crib things from so many different wrestlers that like he would watch stuff of, but he was so naturally talented, gifted himself that he would never make stuff look any he would never do anything and have it would never look like a second rate like 
he never looked like a second-rate Akuto Hodaka when he was doing Akuto Hodaka technical stuff. He never looked like a second-rate Brother Yashi when he was being a sleazy heel. Um, he wasn't being a, a second-rate, um, uh, no another example is, but there there was Doug Williams, say, like when he'd be doing Doug Williams stuff, or, um, yeah. Uh, or when he got really into he got really into like lucha submission wrestling for a while and he was doing stuff that he'd see from there so um yeah it's this match really is speaks to so much of the strengths of alex shelley as a performer and he just sh- shone in a big way so did rave and you could tell they were having an amazing time and this was like they ended their weekend with the uh, uh, well, probably as two of the only guys in the locker room that weren't like wrapped up in and sitting in a wheelchair at the end of the weekend. They were they were happy just with that. But I think they had big smiles on their face at the end of their weekend. Um, Matt, you said a little while ago that we should have Alan on whenever we put a, a shows with Dragon Gate guys. I think after that answer, we have to ban Alan for shows with Dragon Gate guys because he's making us look bad. <laughs> like, yeah, well, that's not so hard. But yes, you're right. He is. Like that is that was a fantastic. I mean, the insight and the background and just I, I thought I was giving Alex Shelley his flowers, but again, I, I think that you know that alone. We just try and do the plugs off top and at the end of our show for whatever our projects our our guests do. But I think that alone, like knowing that interviews out there and just getting a few tidbits from that, like that alone is a reason I think to justify if that sounds interesting to you. To get a yeah, PW Torch subscription, you know, if, to if you want to that even, show. If you want a tease of an even better story from that interview, um, uh, for the, the famous um, Speed Muscle versus Motor City Machine Guns tag on uh, Impact, um, the story behind that match and uh, which a veteran le- legend absolutely loved that match that you'll never guess who um, uh, is well worth well worth checking out. Wow. Yeah, that, that I'm going to have to go back and listen to this, too, because like uh, you, you wet my whistle even. So, yeah, that's uh, and obviously there's so much stuff on the torch and so many other great podcasts, too. So um, after the match, uh, Rave gets some heat for winning and winning clean. We should point out, too, though, that, you know, there was a little bit of interference. But in terms of the finish, like no direct cheating, um, we get a few more rolls of toilet paper and a couple pieces of garbage. I noticed even just being thrown in the ring as Prezak knows that the embassy went three for three on this triple shot and they might be in line for a tag title shot. So that was kind of like the whole basis of their little their little mini arc here on this triple shot was, yeah, they get three wins, saying them up and sadly We'll be saying goodbye to Shelley on through the years, you know, in a couple shows as a regular. He'll come back for a couple of matches down the road. But um, we next join Lance Storm backstage. Finally, instead of doing one of those, seeing one of those 800 pre-taped promos, Matt, that all were clearly taped at like the same place, probably the show he guest appeared at. We finally get a hot, fresh new Lance Storm promo. And actually, I would say this one's pretty good. Um, Lance says 10 months ago. He had his last match after he wrestled Chris Jericho at ECW One Night Stand. Lance says two things have brought him back, Ring of Honor and a shot at a world title. He says seeing Brian Danielson wrestle in December in Ring of Honor lit a spark under him. He says he's trained for this match like no other in his career. He's had 10 straight weeks to focus just on this one single match, one thing, one title. Lance says for 15 years, he's never done anything half-assed. So tonight he's going to do what he does best. He says he's held every title that could be won except for a world title. No company's world title has he ever held. He says it means everything to him to win one of those, and he will find a way to take it tonight. 
Yeah, overall, I thought this was a pretty decent promo from a guy not known from his promos. In fact, known for just yep. the opposite. I th- I'd say one of the better promos I've seen from him, and like I liked it a lot. Like I, I he really seemed like he meant what he was saying. You know what I mean? I think that's like that's what really put it over the top for me. Like it just seemed like legit. You know, which I think is as good as you can ask for in a promo. And um, you know, I. I I, you know, I'm, in order to really appreciate the promo, you have to ignore the silliness of how they built up the match on DVDs. Where I don't, like, I don't know if you remember this, Alan, but he basically on like all the recent DVDs, he'd appear for two seconds, being like, "Hmm, I think maybe I'll challenge Brian Danielson for a match." And I'm just like, "Well, the match is going to be in a week, so shouldn't you decide by now?" And then the night on like the last show, they're, they're finally like, "Tomorrow night, Lance Storm will challenge the world champion," and it's like. Okay, why did you have to wait? Why did you have to act like the match was just made the day before? That's weird. And this makes a lot more sense. Like, oh, I've been training for it for 10 weeks. That makes much more sense. Yeah, and, I, and I, yeah, it goes against the entire thing. You know, they did all this build to make it feel like Landstorm was on the fence and slowly getting convinced. And then this promo just gives away the plot where he says, yeah, I've been focused on training for this match for two and a half months. Where you're like, okay, well, that completely contradicts the entire build of this. But yeah, I thought that note for a story actually is really compelling because you think about it, you go yeah how many times in like wrestling history does a wrestler literally just have two and a half months to prepare for one single match where they know that far in advance they're having one match they have no other match to prepare for which is how it like, typically is in real combat sports right like they have yeah, exactly yeah but in wrestling it's a complete novelty and i thought that was an interesting thing to kind of focus on that and the it's not just him kind of ring of honor but like look i've never won like a company's top title you know, I, I thought he found a couple interesting hooks there, you know, that you wouldn't have expected from a guy like Lance Storm to be like, and he had good delivery and good, some good passion. And it's just, it's just weird. They waited till like the DVD itself to, to promote this storyline, but Hey, whatever, better late than never. Um, Alan, I know you, you, you were interested in what our thoughts on the Lance Storm match will be later. And I, I'm, I definitely have a take on that match, but did you have any thoughts about this promo? Oh, I thought it was good. Some of the promo was good. Basically, okay. as good as as good as you're gonna get from Landstorm, <laughs> but uh, was uh, just in terms of the build, is it my memory playing tricks for me, or was Lance kind of documenting his prep for this match on his weekly or biweekly, I think as it was then, shows uh, with Brian Alvarez? I do not I'm recall. Not sure. I I did not do research into that. You know, I mean, I, I know. I feel like I remember him talking quite a bit about it. Um, but uh, I, I also am wondering, did he – no, it was when Jericho was making Jericho's return to WWE in 2007. He did like a big training camp with Lance. It wasn't they did a training camp together for this match. Mm. But uh, yeah, um, Lance definitely uh, – he, he definitely took it seriously and – um, he he might have just talked about it all after the fact with Brian. Yeah. That that could be it. But I know he definitely has talked about this match and what went into his training and all that a lot. And he took it extremely seriously. Uh, like he said in this promo, he's not one to ever do things half-assed. <laughs> and that brings us to the four-corner survival match. Samoa Joe defeated AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels with Allison Danger in his corner and, and Jimmy Yang. In 18 minutes, 29 seconds, when he pinned Styles after a muscle buster. So, uh, Matt, uh, let's go through this off the top. This match, a random four-way, 
is the blow-off match for the entire Samoa Joe-Christopher Daniels Ring of Honor feud. It's the end of a three-match series over this triple shot where Joe and Danielson face off in three kinds of different kinds of matches. They go into this one tied one win apiece, and it ends with Samoa Joe winning the, the Christopher Daniels feud by pinning AJ Styles in a match where Daniels and Joe honestly don't interact that much, and where Daniels... Is who's a face at this point in Ravar is strangely a little bit cowardly and takes a backseat to the other three guys. Um, I, go, I want your thoughts on the match. I'm going to also ask you this. If you would just watch this match in isolation, not knowing any background with the commentary out, and then I asked you at the end of the match, based on watching this match, who do you think were feuding out of the four people in this match going into this night? I have to think everyone would have answered AJ Styles and Samoa Joe, right? Like, not Christopher Daniels and, and Samoa Joe. Yeah, I mean, that is sort of how I watched the match. Like, you have to completely divorce the Daniels and Joe storyline from it, or else it's like, a little bit confounding. Um, so it's like, yeah, I mean, like, I just put that out of my mind. Like, that, that's, like that, that feud is over. You know, this would make more sense, you know, even not completely make sense, because you're right that Daniels and Joe don't interact as much, but would have made more sense if this was, like, the first night of the triple shot, and then the singles match was the last night. Yeah. Than this, so I just sort of act like, all right, well, that's not a thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what do you think about the match? Obviously, we liked that uh, the three way a, a bit more than I thought we th- we probably expected. But now we got basically the legendary kind of three way, but Jimmy Yang involved. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like, um, I mean, I, I actually, okay, so I do think that Daniels and Styles and Joe did seem to be more motivated than usual in this match. Like, I do think they were being much more physically exert, especially Styles, like much more physically exertive and exertive in this match than they have been in recent ROH. And, and Joe too, honestly. Like, I mean, Joe had a good match against Daniels, uh, two nights earlier, the, the Dragon Gate challenge match. But this one, like they, you know, they seem to be, obviously they're not going to do their full TNA main event, but they seem to be working really hard and they really enjoy working with each other. And, you know, they're, they're, Joe is, has some really intense moments with his, um, you know, with his kicks and with his face washes and, you know, and, and, you know, do more like drop kicks and things like that. And Daniels is very motivated too. Um, you know, he does, at one point, he does a reverse Rana on Yang from the middle rope. And that's not a move he does very often. Um, so, you know, anytime you see these guys busting out like new, um, you know, kind of spectacular things, you always can tell they're a little bit, more motivated than usual. So on that on that end of it, like it was really good. Um, there was a lot of Yang in this match, and you know Yang, I think was probably better than usual here. He was working pretty hard, but you could tell like he wasn't at the level of these three guys at this style. You could see him getting winded at different points. Um, you know, and there's there's there, you know he they, they would try to include him in the character stuff. Like there was one spot where. Yang tags Daniels in by seemingly shoving him to the floor, and then it counted as a tag. Like there was one cool spot where he does a corner kick on Daniels and then skins the cat right back into the ring. Like so, there's you know there's fun stuff there. Um, there's a, there's a period where Styles is sort of the f- in peril, you know, and and there everyone's taking turns beating on him. And there's a lot of hard strikes between Joe and AJ. Like you mentioned, you could tell there was like some animosity there. I guess they kind of brought their TNA um, feud kind of into the match without saying it overtly. Um, so I, I think like the thing is this match on its own is is quite good. Like I feel like it's a really good match. Like they're like these are – I mean Joe and AJ and Daniels are great with each other during this period. Um, 
And like, I think what helped in terms of Yang is that the fact that he was there allowed them to sort of work really hard, but also not overexert themselves in the way they would have if, if Yang wasn't in the match. But they still, when they were doing stuff, seemed to work hard. So, like, I think it was really good. I think it was just so overshadowed by the stuff they were doing with each other in TNA. Because not only did they have that classic match at Unbreakable in 05, I think this very, like, the month before, like, I think it was March 06, they had the rematch. on, And obviously, it wasn't anywhere near as good as the first one. But, you know, still more than they were doing in ROH. So, like, it's interesting. Like, I think it was a really good match, but also kind of disappointing, but also maybe better than you'd expect, given what they've been doing recently in ROH. Like, it's it's a weird mix. But overall, I think on the show, like in the middle of the show, it's a good match. Like, it's a quite good match. Alan, what do you think about it? Better than my memory uh, had for this match. Like, I kind of... And it sounds a bit harsh on uh, Jimmy Yang, but like a lot of anything he, anything he kind of did in ROH, I don't have like the fondest memory of in terms of it's just kind of oh yeah, he was kind of there, not overly exciting. Um, and it's like you see him attached to a match, so you are kind of expecting that when it's your overriding memory of his his whole output. Um, and I didn't actually twig that this was the three guys from the. Uh, triple threat in or, uh, the three-way dance in um, in TNA in September 05, um, the, the legendary match. So that, that's interesting uh, mentioning that. Um, but uh, yeah, it just, it was better than, than I remember. There's just a lot of good solid action. Like a lot of the AJ and Joe stuff was really good. Um, those two always just killed it together. Um, I don't know if it was just positioning on the card or other matches kind of lasting more in my memory from this show, but I just, yeah, I wasn't expecting um, too much from it. I wasn't expecting it to be a match that would kind of be a highlight of my rewatch, but kind of was, it was really, really enjoyable. Um, Just a good flow to it and and lots of good action and really well worked and didn't overstay its welcome. I didn't think Uh, so. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I'd have it maybe at the, three and three quarter four star kind of level um but not much higher not much lower just in around that kind of uh notebook uh level yeah i'd have it probably a like three and a half but i'm a little bit of a harder marker but i actually liked i agree with both you guys i I like this match more than i thought going in i think obviously with matches like this it's your expectations because if you just don't know the kind of context of where these guys are at in 2006 ring of honor or don't know that jimmy yang's run in ring of honor wasn't particularly great like you might look at this paper and go oh man this is gonna be fantastic you know it's not on that level you don't expect like a tna three-way plus jimmy yang and like your best version of that but i thought you know this was not you know it's not a super memorable match from like a storyline standpoint or anything like that but it doesn't feel that weighty but everyone works hard it's really quite fun Matt, I completely agree with you. I think this is one of AJ's best performances on his second Ring of Honor run. The run, you know, that we've talked about recently gets maligned by a lot of people, including us sometimes, where it doesn't seem like he's necessarily always putting in 100% effort. I don't know what percentage I'd give to his effort here, but, like, he and Joe really go to town on each other. And I I would say their interactions are the highlight of this match. And I, I think AJ, I agree with you, like, AJ in particular, I think really did, you know, 
put himself out there in this match. So I thought it was a good showing for him. Um, that's one of those matches where there's not a ton of distinctive stuff to talk about. Even you guys covered most of it. It's just, you know, good match. It's a weird ending to the Daniels Joe feud, but it is a good match. Crowd is very hot for the three guys. You can tell, you know, they're really pumped for the TNA guys. My, my one kind of funny note is Dave Prezak says this match will have huge implications on the top five rankings. And I'll note Jimmy Yang takes the fall here. AJ Styles wins. AJ Styles does not get a, I mean, no, AJ Styles does not win. Samoa Joe wins, but Samoa Joe does not get a title shot anytime soon. Jimmy Yang gets a title shot like a couple shows from now. So, yeah, and, and, by, and by the way, did they even do the top five rankings on this show? I don't remember them doing it on this DVD. No, yeah. they did not. No. I don't think so. And they were, they were doing it all the recent ones. Could Joe's injury that we mentioned earlier maybe have had something to do with that? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. He does end up working, you know, the next few shows, but... Yeah, that is possible. Oh, it is funny. We'll get to, I guess, when the Joe Danielson promo happens. There's something they kind of mentioned that makes me wonder what Gabe's plans were. But, in fact, we'll just go right now to uh, that segment. Because after the match, Joe grabs a mic and he welcomes Chicago back to pro wrestling. He reminds us that he was once Ring of Honor World Champion, except when he got the belt, it was just called the Ring of Honor Championship. It was Joe that made it a world championship by defending it outside of the U.S., uh, yes, Joseph, with that incredible defense against the Zebra Kid on one of the <laughs> times when he was on release from yes. jail. Oh, I did not know that. Um, ah, he's Joseph, had his run-ins. <laughs> Joe says he's been on hiatus. He hasn't been in the hunt, so to speak. But here tonight, in front of Ring of Honor's largest crowd in history, in front of 1,600 <laughs> rabid pro wrestling fans, he says he wants his title back. Do you notice how this is the second promo that he does this weekend where he's like, I've been out of the mix, but now I'm in the mix. Like Because he did it with the CZW feud two nights earlier, and now he's doing it with the world title hunt. <laughs> Guys, I've been kind of, you know, blah, but, you know, here I am. It's time for a run. Now I'm going to be involved uh, in everything. <laughs> yeah. Joe says Brian Danielson claims to be the greatest wrestler in the world, but unfortunately for him, Joe is the baddest motherfucker on earth. He says if Danielson has any balls, he'll come accept Joe's challenge. And so out comes Brian Danielson. Brian gets the mic as the crowd chants, Joe's going to kill you. And Danielson asks the crowd, are you done? And the crowd shouts back to him, no. And they start to chant back up again, which I thought was my The crowd do like petulant little kids, but in a really funny way. Um, Danielson cr- calls the crowd idiots and says that Joe will be killing nobody. Um, Brian says, Joe says that, you know, you, you're talking about you made the Ring of Honor world title, but the title made you, Joe. Daniel says, without Ring of Honor, Joe would still be in Samoa climbing coconut trees to get food for his family. Uh, Joe starts unraveling his ring tape as the crowd chants again for Joe to fuck him up, just doing that kind of quiet seethe. Yeah, J- Joe had a very, his demeanor changed quite a bit when Danielson dropped that line on him. Yeah, um, Danielson does his famous over-the-top <clears throat> throat clearing and asks the crowd, who he calls knuckleheads, which I thought was delightful, to chant, lose some weight, Joe, lose some weight. Some fans, but not too many briefly do joe's starting to get real pissed danielson says if i could be serious for a moment which gets a big ooh from the crowd like it's yeah, like that, of all the things danielson has said on this promo like that's like oh snap he stole lance storms 
because because yeah. people like quickly realized like oh I see what he's doing and they felt clever so they said ooh and his, his shit eating grin that he had when he said <laughs> it he was so proud of himself he was just proud of himself in general during this pro it was this was uh, go, keep going Trevor this no it, yeah it's great um Brian says he can't guarantee how long he'll hold the Ring of Honor World Championship but everyone sees Joe as an ROH icon. But the truth is, the record-breaking crowd came when Brian Danielson was the world champion, not Joe. Brian says, regardless of when they wrestle and if it's for the Ring of Honor world title or not, what's really at stake between them is who is the real Ring of Honor icon. Brian says, it's not Joe, and starts to dance around him as Joe tries to walk him down. Brian says, after he kicks the crap out of Lance Storm tonight, the crowd interrupts Brian to boo him for saying that. And then Brian says, Lance has nothing on me. I was trained by HB, HBK while Lance was dying up in Calgary. The time, the timeline on that line does not work out. <laughs> he, he didn't just say he was going to kick his ass. He said he was going to tap man to a single leg crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brian then says after he taps Lance out to his own single leg crap, Joe can challenge him. So come and bring it jerk which i like, he does this pause like 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 that, that's the mic drop for danielson and he jumps out of the ring and like alan said he is just so happy with himself this is this is like um the third in a series of ever growing um events where danielson shows that he is one of the already at this point one of the best live mic workers in the entire business um first one was unscripted to then uh, arena warfare and now this every single time he does he does, gets on the live mic in front of the crowd he absolutely kills it at this point i don't know how anyone didn't think he was one of the best promos in wrestling in 2006 i was arguing it at the time nobody nobody agreed with me to that level but i still think it it's people who just had their mind made up on what he was who he is and didn't actually watch his stuff with a critical eye and yeah. and an openness to changing their viewpoint yeah, and, Dan, and Dave Melcher would fit that list because he never, you know, because he saw this stuff. He never talked about Danielson as being a great promo, but he was a great promo by the standards of 2006, at least his live promos. I know his backstage stuff still wasn't, but this stuff was masterful. You get the same thing there, not, not in terms of promos, but in terms of like uh, Will Ospreay. It's like people, are like, oh, he's just a guy who does flips. And I was like, you, you clearly don't watch me. Will Ospreay, yeah, it's like, um, or like even the Young Bucks. It's like, well, the idea that the Young Bucks don't like do stories and psychology in their matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just nonsense. And yeah, Danielson was like for me, like at the time, like especially in like '06, I I thought Danielson was a a great all round performer. But like going back, and you guys pointed it out in some of your very early shows, you did that, like you'd see some of the Danielson uh, charisma shine through in like as early as like late 03, 04, you started to see glimpses of it. And like that to me is surprising. Cause like that was the era where I, people thought of him as like Dean Malenko or something. Yeah. 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 He, he really wasn't thought of, but it's, yeah, it, it, it comes true. And, and yeah, by 06, Oh my God. Like he's, it's funny that people think, of Brian Danielson 2006 title run and it's like ah oh, this legendary championship reign the greatest ring of honor championship reign it just brought so much honor to the belt meanwhile in reality it's like not his best year in terms of in-ring matches he has some great ones but he has like some ones that fall a little bit flat and like I would say he's far better hit rate in 2007 um 
And in 2006, he's basically like Buddy Landell or something like that. He's just yeah. this total goofball heel. Look at my biceps and stuff. Yeah. Like well, the thing, but, but I, okay, but like, I'm just trying to think back and like, who in American wrestling cut consistently more entertaining promos than Brian Danielson? Like, if you, like, you know, I like, like high level promos. I don't think anyone in WWE was really doing it, you know, like that, not that year. Six. Um, hmm. I don't, I think it comes down Edge? to what, Maybe? I think it comes down to what Alan said, like I was going to make the Will Ospreay compare, like Alan often says things I, I'm about to say, like Alan is just on my wavelength today, but like, like it's really hard a lot. We both had naps, Trevor, that's why. <laughs> we, Matt, Alan and I, we talked, we both had pre-show naps, and so Matt's the only one working really, he's working at a disadvantage. <laughs> sure. I'm, a, I'm always working at a little bit of disadvantage no. compared to you two, but yeah. No, you're doing, but no, I, I think that's a great, uh, question matt my memory obviously is always so horrible but i i do think alan like it's really hard i think when people make a first impression to change it, especially if people a lot of times will just see like one performance and they'll just decide oh and i think a lot of people yeah they always tried to slot danielson into that you know the old vanilla midget that dismissive term for guys like you know malenko and benoit and I, yeah i think if you've rewatched ring of honor with us or even just listened to us on through the years like danielson was never and no offense to these guys but he was never dean malenko or chris Mal. like he always was more playful and more comfortable at riffing off of the crowd i think than those guys were even well into their careers like he was never that guy but you have to really watch a lot of his matches and and like actually not just w- watch it for five minutes ago. Oh, he kind of seems like other guys I've seen. Like, yeah. And by the way, here's here's a list of best on interviews from the 2006 Observer Awards. Okay. Mick Foley was number one. I guess for I guess for the stuff with Flair. Um, but you know that was a very short little stuff run. Edge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Stuff with Edge too. Yeah. Edge was Edge was number two. Conan was number three. I guess he was do- for the stuff he was doing with LAX. Cena was number four. Cornette was number five. Tito Ortiz was number six and Brian Danielson was number seven. So I guess I'll say this. Okay. I guess I'll say this. The one, so I haven't watched the Foley Edge Conan Cena stuff obviously in a long time. So I'm not going to say that Danielson was better than them, but I have watched the Cornette stuff that got him the award and I like Danielson's promos better. I just do. Like maybe it's because I just kind of like him better, but I, I, you know, I just do. Unless you really like slurs, the Danielson ones are better. Although Danielson, Danielson even has a couple of those, unfortunately, but hey, it was 2006. You can't get away from it completely, but still. I mean, uh, Matt, you were saying this is a good night for Cornette, but I think we'd all agree this was better than what Cornette did tonight, even with a great folksy butter churn joke. I think this was better still. (laughs) Yes. I'm just surprised he made that list, to be honest. Like, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was he was cleaning up in some of those awards just in general. Like, people, you know, people really loved him that year for other reasons. Like he was four for Wrestler of the Year, and he was one for Most Outstanding. And obviously, he won the technical award like that because that was ended up being named after him. But so, like you know, people there was a lot of momentum for Danielson that year. But I still think that he did. He was better than some of the tastemakers like the melters of the world give him credit for on interviews but, uh, i always sorry go ahead Trevor. i was just gonna say but going to your point alan like he, this really was the year where i think in a lot of people's eyes i mean i think uh, like i didn't know that either matt like i i'm glad you found that because like i think that shows that at least for some people this was the year where they realized oh 
Brian Danielson like is a personality. You know, he's not just a, a good rest, a great wrestler. So yeah, going to your point, Alan, yeah, like, yeah, this was the year where in some ways the bigger story with Danielson is the character. I, um, I've mentioned this on numerous uh, times in, in recent years, but I always think back to a memory of, um, I'm not trying to, rail on, on, on Brian Alvarez here because he was far from the only one that would have been slow on, on these type of things. But um, I was, you know, I, I was an enthusiastic guy in my twenties at, at the, that point in time. And like, I loved the, the new cutting edge wrestling place like ring of honor and stuff like that. And, you know, someone like Brian was 10 years older. He was kind of more, um, you know, harder to win over with the new stuff. It's the, the, it's a story as old as time. So what we all go through, you know, like new stuff now is going to have a harder time winning me over. So, um, but I was like, I was making a big point on like the F4W board, like how Danielson was like the best wrestler in the world or something like that. And how he was like better than Benoit or, or something along those lines. And, Brian and Vinny were reviewing an ROH show and Brian was just in total Brian mode, just like scoffing at the idea of Danielson being better than Benoit and being the best in the world. And he, and his whole point was if you ask Brian Danielson, if he was better than Chris Benoit, he would just think that was the most ridiculous thing in the world. And it's like, there's not, he's good. He's a good wrestler. What? Come on. And it was like, um, you know, knowing what we know now about Brian Danielson's confidence levels, I bet he probably did think he was better than Chris Benoit. But uh, anyway, but but he would have acted, but he would have acted like he didn't. Yeah, I was going to see the opposite. I was going to say Brian Albert. I mean, Brian Danielson, you could probably ask him, like, is Matt and I a better wrestler? And he's like, yeah, you could be better if you played for like he might he might say that. But, you know, that Brian Danielson deep down knew that he was as good as, you know, knew that he was fucking awesome. You know, but but he's an unbelievably humble guy publicly in terms of like he will throw roses at so many guys over him. Like he'll talk about like, oh, Yuji Nagata smokes me, you know, for sure. But like, you know, you know, like deep down, you know, he has a lot of pride. Um, the the other thing I was going to say is it wasn't just like um, us like dopey fans and people on the internet and stuff that were slow to or that were pigeonholing Danielson in this way. Like the company that signed him three years later were still thinking, oh, I suppose we should sign this ROH guy now, you know. Probably a good little worker, Dean Malenko type, vanilla midget. I uh, maybe we'll find something for him to do. Put the cruiserweight title on. Uh, they did. Nobody in WWE knew that he was the level of character and promo that he was because the proof was the two years later when, like by accident, he got a chance to show it. Once they saw it, they were like, "Oh my god." You're actually like really good at this. Although, although they continued to resist all the way to the end, but yeah, I um, you know, I would argue he is still to this day underutilized. That reminds me, Alan, of the story uh, CM Punk gave famously, where he was like Vince McMahon, I think maybe like Michael Hayes or something, sat him down when he was going to turn heel for Jeff Hardy. They're like, 
we kind of want you to turn heel, but we don't know if you can do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that reminds me of that. Like, just like you do, literally, this guy's been your employee, like, for a while now, and you literally don't know their skill set. Like, you yeah, don't know what they can do. It's wild how ignorant people in wrestling can be. <laughs> like, you'd think if you're going to hire a guy, you'd at least know what you're, what you're hiring, but I... Yeah. Anyway, but the, when, when I say so, like, I know this is a, a long tangent, but like when Danielson first went to AEW and like those first few months, didn't you kind of get the vibe that they were going to do more with him than they have? Like and like give him a like a chance to be like this like over, overarching like super like character of like the best in the world. Like he really hasn't gotten a chance to be that. And I know like you know a lot of us say it's because I'm, I'm higher. I'm higher on his output. His output is great. It's it's more like the what the his position that I'm more thinking about. Yeah, when I say output, I mean his everything, how he's used, like what we've got out of him as, as fans. But like I, I'm higher on it the most. I've, I've, I I know there are people that that think that he could be used better, and he could be used better. But uh, a lot of guys in AEW could be used better. But it's all about like the overall package and i think tony has a, a style he books in terms of you know how he kind of cycles guys in and out of, of, of major programs and stuff like this and and as well when you look at danielson's run in AEW, outside of a significant chunk of time where he was on the shelf uh on being held back because of concerns with injuries slash concussions or whatever um whenever he has been available He's been pretty consistently, like more than most, um, consistently used. And in big spots, like we've had no shortage of great Danielson matches since he arrived. Um, I think he has had the chance to do some very interesting character and storyline stuff with the JS and Garcia. Um, I think that would have been interesting. I think there was definitely something even better brewing before his injury went with the way anarchy in the arena ended. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Eddie Kingston stuff where Eddie Kingston came out with the gasoline and Danielson flipped on him and and pushed him away. And the, the feud that was there with those guys, but then Jericho and Hagar just uh, took out Danielson and choked him out. So I think there was going to be a lot of really interesting. It could have been like a triangle thing with the, Kingston Jericho feud having Danielson in it and um I think the Danielson Moxley stuff was really interesting how they were going to be a team but they had to wrestle each other first and then bring Regal into it. and now with the whole mentoring young guys and I, I think they've done a lot of interesting stuff but I I'm I'm not really into yeah they could have just gone okay he's going to be the top guy world champion and put the belt on him and had him like yeah, that would have been one route to do, but I think they've done a lot of interesting stuff with them, and you know, I I I get the impression he kind of wants to be doing more varied stuff. Like I, I'd say he's probably happy with what he's done rather than just you know wrestling main events. And I, I'm not sure if he would have held up wrestling main events like that page those page matches he had and the Omega match he had. I don't know if he could have done that and, and held up. Um, if he was doing that consistently from then till now, I still would like to see him win more. <laughs> it feels like that—that's one thing. that feels consistent with WWE. He d- hasn't win won too many really big matches. Just personally, yeah, he's lost a few to Jericho two to one. He lost 
Moxley twice. Twice was it? Yeah. Did, did he lose the first one to Moxley? Yeah, yes. And he, and he and obviously he lost to Page. Obviously, you know, Page was a champion. So. Yeah. yeah, that's that's fair. He has kind of come out on the on the on the short end of a lot of his his bigger things. So yeah, that's that's fair. So, um, well, I think the most important thing we can say about Danielson, though, is the best thing he's ever done was at the end of this promo, where as he was going to the back, <laughs> a fan heckles him, and he replies, nice Sandman t-shirt, asshole. And so <laughs> better than anything he's done in any promotion, really. But um, so Brian leaves, and in comes Chris Hero and Necro Butcher to attack Samoa Joe. Adam Pierce immediately joins in, and we have a ringside brawl that, for some reason, is initially only shown via the hard cam, which means we can't see shit. We soon get a better view, kind of, because Pierce takes Hero into the crowd. They hit each other with chairs, and because we then now get our usual hard-to-make-out crowd brawl that is, at some points, in complete abject darkness. There's a lot of stuff we can't see, only here, despite the camera being right on top of them. Like, the handheld guy is clearly right next to him, but it's just so dark. Um... They brawl back into the ring where Necro rejoins them. Claudio Castagnoli then jumps in the ring and he goes to European uppercut hero who is being held back by Pierce. But hero moves at the last second. Claudio uppercuts Pierce instead. Jim Cornette then comes to ringside. He throws Claudio his baseball bat. Claudio swings at Hero, but Hero ducks and then throws Claudio out of the ring. Claudio immediately sells like he's hurt his knee. Um, Cornette goes to check on Claudio, but Hero tosses Jim back into the ring. damn it, Claudio! <laughs> yeah, I figure this is probably where Hero tosses Jim in the rings, probably where Jim hurt his knee. Um, Hero ends up slapping Cornette in the face Necro as Necro holds him. Hero then attacks Cornette's arm as Adam Pierce tries to save Cornette. Necro cuts off Pierce. Hero hits Cornette in the arm with a steel chair and seems ready to pilmanize it with the chair. When BJ Whitmer runs in the ring, he attacks Necro. Till Hero chop blocks uh, Necro, I mean uh, BJ's broken ankle. He then hits BJ's cast with a hard chair shot. Pierce like lays on top of Whitmer trying to shield him. Hero just hits Pierce with a chair, hits Whitmer with the chair again. A fan throws toilet paper in the ring. It hits Necro. Necro sells huge for the toilet paper. I love the Necro sell of the toilet paper. He like spins around in confusion and terror. Like it's yeah. just amazing. Hero attacks Whitmer's broken ankle again before he and Necro finally flee into the crowd when a bunch of Ring of Honor students and undercard wrestlers chase them away. So another big segment here. A couple of live notes. Well, first with the Observer. Um, we talked, Alan, you would have missed this, but on the last show we were talking about uh, how Chris Hero threw some chairs and uh, one of them accidentally hit Mary Kate, the Ring of Honor photographer, apparently hit her pretty bad. Apparently her arm was bandaged up on this show. Um, Hero does it again here. So we don't really see it on the show, but the Observer wrote, Dave Meltzer wrote, Hero, Chris Hero left and was throwing chairs again. Just his luck, he went two for two as a girl, as a chair hit a girl in the front row. Carrie Silken and Gabe Zapolsky ran out to make sure that they weren't going to get sued over that one. There ended up being no apparent problem, and the girl was a big Jack Evans fan, and Jack Evans talked to her for 30 minutes, so she was happy. Um, and then a little more color added from Russell Jaffe's live report. He wrote, at one point, Chris Hero threw a chair, which hit a woman in the front row in the back of the head totally sucked the air out of the building either ring of honor needs to post disclaimers about getting potentially hurt at their shows or hero needs to stop throwing chairs randomly second i I think this stops throwing i think maybe both that could be to be good He, he continues second part sounds better to me besides that 
and the free stuff chance directed at Gabe about the girl. This brawl was sweet. I love that the, we, again, we didn't hear this. The crowd chanted free stuff at Gabe as he checked on the girl, like give her free stuff. Apparently so, all she, uh, if this is like at about, I don't know, 10 PM at night, Gabe and Carrie are stressing about possibly getting sued by a fan who got hit with a chair. And then fast forward two hours later, Gabe and Carrie are not having called an audible to make sure that you don't have the whole crowd throwing their chairs into the ring. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah. That's like, where they're like, oh, well, well we got away with that one. I guess we've nothing to be concerned about going forward. With it's, any black. it's wild. <laughs> surely, surely it won't happen again, even if we multiply the amount of chairs thrown by 200. <laughs> Did, did, I'll have notes for that. The, the, the chair throwing did not go without complications at the main event either. So, oh yeah, this, this is a three-chair event triple. It's a, it's, a, it's a fitting for the triple shot that we get basically like three-chair throwing incident. Did I ever tell this anecdote on the show where I went to a SmackDown taping in at MSG in June 03, and it was when Zach Gallen was in WWE feuding with Vince? And after a, a live uh, in-ring promo segment, Vince had Zach Gowan's cane and he was like fooling around with it. And he's like, like mockingly walking around the ring with the cane. And then he just chucks it behind them and it hits someone in the crowd. Now that would have been a lawsuit that to, of the ages. Cause you could literally sue them. And it was the owner who actually did it. That would have been amazing, but it didn't happen. They get to talk to Jack. Like, I, <laughs> I love, like, uh, there's something charming about the idea that, like, someone could have potentially, like, sued or at least raised holy hell to probably get some kind of financial thing. And instead, they just settle for, could I talk to Jack Evans for half an hour? Like, that's such a, in some ways sad, some ways sweet. Like, like, you do like, you do the same thing, Trevor. Yeah, I was trying to think, like, like, is there any wrestler where it's like, oh, you could talk to this wrestler for 30 minutes if you don't sue us? I'd be like, oh, great. Like Ricky Starks, come out here. Let's talk about like I don't know pie <laughs> wrestling. How about wrestling? That would be a good thing to talk eh, about. Yeah, nothing in common. Um, anyway, for the whole promo segment, I actually um, I mean the, this whole segment, you know, it's another good CCW brawl. You know, some parts of it were getting to a little bit of diminishing returns, but I will say I really liked how this set up the Claudio turn on the next show because you get the Claudio accidentally. You know, it's all done subtle enough that unlike some of the other shows where they're kind of leaning so hard into the Claudio stuff, you can kind of see things coming. With this, you know, he accidentally hits Pierce, but it seems very plausible that it was just an accident. He, you know, gets hurt, gangs from the outside, and you could say, oh, that happened. But in the next show, when he makes the turn, you will, you will realize in hindsight, oh, he fakes an injury so he doesn't have to, like – keep trying to find excuses to not fight the CZW guys he's going to be aligned with. Like, I thought there was some nice foreshadowing in this segment, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Like, I yeah, I love the, I like the, fore, I wrote that too. Like, they set that up very well. Um, and Alan, we finally get to the, 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 we've, you've told most of this, but just to record it for posterity, this is from Derek Bergen and Dr. Keith's PW Torch live report of the show, because in fact, they were at the show. I'm sure this is Bergen writing this part. He writes, Adam Pierce checked on Whitmer after the segment and yelled out, is there a doctor in the house? All of a sudden, a big Dr. Keith chant erupted, but Keith Lipinski had gone to the bathroom about five minutes earlier. Seriously. And then Keith adds a note that says, Keith note, this has to be now, has to be now the greatest wrestling regret of my life. Yes, even more than missing WrestleMania 13. So. 
Dr. Keith, this was his, isn't there been a couple like award show famous moments where like people in award shows have gotten awards when they were in the bathroom? Like this is very much Dr. Keith's moment for that. We we could start a uh, Dr. Keith chant now and he wouldn't to get him to join us, but he's sadly backstage at an AAW show as we're recording this. So, oh, well. Always slacking that, Dr. Keith. But uh, <laughs> next we get an ad for the ROH Straight Shooting Series of Shooter Views. I just wrote in my notes, kids, they were like video podcasts that you paid for. Because I feel like the longer we do the show, the more saying shoot interviews starts to take on a weird like connotation probably for a potential more of the audience. But um, we then go backstage where Dave Prezak is joined with the embassy of Prince Nana, Alex Shell, and Jimmy Raven intermission. If you want, this was like a night of great promo segments because I love this. They are happy. They are celebrating. Nana says they are finally on the same page. Rave says he's going to be an international superstar after tonight, you know, being the Japanese guys. Nana says Rave will be on, quote, TV in Japan, Iraq, all of these places. Those are the, you know, all of these places. Japan, Iraq, everything else. <laughs> you um, notice Alex Shelley bursting at the seams, <laughs> repeatedly saying Samurai TV, Samurai TV, when, uh, <laughs> when he said TV in Japan. Um, Nana says they're going to bring the titles back to the little kids in Ghana. Nana says they're going to be go out and party tonight. And Shelly is so pumped, as as Alan said. I did not note the samurai tea. I'm glad he caught that. But Sh- Shelly did then say she, he shouted, "We're going to get laid by hookers." To which Dave Prasak has an amazing like, "What the fuck are you saying?" Yeah, Rachel yeah. I, I assume you already have your thumbnail for the show. But if you hadn't chosen it already, it would have been Dave Prasak's look. That's what I would have picked. Just FYI. Nana then says, raises for everybody. And Alex she- Shelley happily yells, I love money. Like it's the most novel idea in the world. And then Nana ends by saying, let's go get some calamari. And I, <laughs> this was an, am- I, this is an amazing a- promo. Amazing yeah, promo. A travesty that we're almost at the end of this era of the embassy. Like it is, they're just hitting their absolute, like they were never not in stride, but they're like full out running now. If they, before they're in stride, they're just, this is fantastic. Yeah, they're so good. They are just so, so, so good. It's crazy that Prince Nana is on like a major wrestling TV show now, too. That's like so out of so random, like great, amazing, but random. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have a confession to make. Um, I don't know if it's a confession, but I, I feel I should share this. But uh, um, 2006, Alan was uh, to him. He really thought the uh, height of fashion was basically how Jimmy Rave was dressed here in this promo. And <laughs> I very much uh, around this time and like second year of college was very much patterning my uh, my fashion after Jimmy Rave in ROH promo segments. I wonder how many people in the world could say that. Yeah, the shirt the, the it was like it was my going out attire like especially on colder evenings you'd have the beanie hat with the the shirt over the long sleeve t-shirt uh, i didn't have the chain going like jimmy but yeah the beanie hat with the dress shirt over the long sleeve t-shirt and the baggy jeans um yeah very much my 2006 look thanks to uh jimmy rave was it a hit like did everyone love it <laughs> I don't think so. But okay. then again, when I look back on photos from that time, I don't think anyone was really hitting uh, hitting on all cylinders. Uh, <laughs> wise. 
Well, <laughs> something that's hit on all cylinders wrestling-wise would be the Ring of Honor Tag Team title match. Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong successfully defended their titles when they defeated Blood Generation of Shima and Naruki Doi in 20 minutes, 22 seconds, when Aries pinned Shima after a 450 splash. Uh, Alan, like, obviously... Very knowledgeable Dragon Gate. This was, you know, in terms of a marquee standpoint, the second biggest Dragon Gate match we were going to see on this triple shot. And uh, to tip my hand, I really enjoyed this match. What did you think about it? Yeah, this match had way more of a feel of like a fight than the other Dragon Gate matches over the course of the weekend. It was a little messier, but at times in a good way, especially as a contrast to the other really smooth matches where it was Dragon Gate guys against each other, or it was guys like Shelly and Rave who are so able to smoothly um, fit into the Dragon Gate style. Um, Roderick Strong famously so did not fit with the Dragon Gate guys that he was blackballed from Dragon Gate because he hurt too many people. Both, uh, um, I, I believe it was, I always think of it as being this match. He hurt Doi, but, I think he hurt Doi in 2005, which surprises me that they had him work with Strong, had those guys work with Strong at this weekend. But anyway, um, he he was ultimately someone that the Dragon Gate guys wouldn't wrestle. Um, Ares, someone who did some Dragon Gate and just didn't work and never came back, um, ends up doing Dragon Gate USA with the guys many years later but that was a very different era uh and he only worked a handful of matches against actual japanese guys but yeah uh way more of a you know like aries and strong confident wrestlers really peaking as a team at, at, at this point and they you know they weren't going to be subservient to nothing like Shelly and Rave were subservient to the Dragon Gate guys, but you know, they were seeking to compliment them. Ares and Strong were like, Hey, we're the champs. This is about us as much as it's about you. And it's a showcase for us. And there was, you could tell like points in the match where like, you know, people were, you know, fighting for kind of real estate in the match, so to speak. And uh, as a result, we saw some uh, we, we saw some injuries, you know, uh, Aries getting that nose busted open, Shima getting dumped on his head right at the end of the match in really nasty fashion. Um, saw a couple of things that were maybe a little bit of mis- miscommunication and, and mistimed moves. But like, Honestly, those were, I think, very much something that only like a a keen eye who's familiar with all four guys and the spots that they were going for would would notice. I, I think it would be very easily uh, not picked up on by m- most fans. So um, overall, I think it, it worked really well as an intense um, struggle tag team match with a lot of good action. And worked at a really good pace. And yeah, there was just, there was a, there was a, um, there was a bite to the match, so to speak. And uh, yeah, um, I, I enjoyed it quite a, quite a bit. Yeah, I, I thought this was a great match. This was my favorite match of the night. Um, I, I, Alan, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the thing that surprised me about this match was, there was a lot more swagger from both teams and yeah, more bite as you would say, like, you know, most of these Dragon Gate matches this weekend, they almost felt like, 
first date kind of matches where it's just people trying to put on their best foot and impress each other and, and and that this match felt like not like we're trying to impress each other and put work together to put on a good performance this felt like a lot of swagger from both teams and like you're the you're the alphas of your promotion we're the we're the kings around here like we're we're having a dick measuring contest here to see who's better like there's just a lot of, of that kind of vibe in this match and I think it really works. There's also a very, maybe more traditional structure than you would think, a little more mid-tempo, but that I think works where you get the big, long Shima face in peril sequence and one big Ares face in peril sequence. And I think they both work really well. The Shima one, because I think Ares and Strong are just really good as a, they're a really good offense team. They're really good about quick tags in and out, some cool double teams, some cool combos, and just they both have a lot of offense that's really snappy and fun to watch and hits quick. And then, obviously, the Ares hot, uh, face apparel sequence really works because his nose explodes, like Matt Seidel's did the night before. And it, you know, it adds drama. It, there, there are times where it looked like, and where the Dragon Gate guys go after it. Like, I'm sure most of it did not hurt, but, like, they grab it. They kind of, like, hit close to it or near it a lot. Um, it, it was a night that looked like it sucked to be Austin Aries because there are moments in this match a couple times where it feels like one of his opponents wants to get him up. And it's almost like he's just like, let me stay down here for a couple more seconds. Like it, it, he gutted this out. And um, yeah, and then you get those final few minutes, like yeah, usual where you get really um, big back and forth kind of craziness. And it was just, I think this is just the, my second favorite Dragon Gate match, I would say, of the entire triple shot. Uh, you get a huge 60-count delayed vertical suplex on Shima, which makes the delayed vertical suplex we get a little bit later seem wimpy in comparison, which always makes you feel bad when someone's like, well, I was planning on doing a 20-count one. It's like, well, someone just topped you. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this match. Matt, what did you think? Um, is this – am I remembering correctly this is the third – Title defense by Ares and Strong. Uh, what would be the other one? There would be the Seidel well, and Styles, and then Lethal and Danielson. Yeah, then I think yeah, this would be the third one. So this was definitely the best of the three. I would say. I mean, I don't know about easily, but I, I mean, I know you liked all of them, but like, I, I think this one was pretty, pretty clearly the best one. Just the intensity, the crowd heat. Um, I, I agree with all of you, like the, you know, that the, it was the intensity, obviously Aries injury, you know, and the blood add a layer of that, which, you know, wouldn't have been there otherwise. I don't know. Like it, it is crazy to see like that, you know, I think once like if somebody breaks their wrist or something in a match, I mean, I know it's different, but like, you're not going to have guys do moves on the wrist while, while it's freshly broken usually, but they obviously attack the broken nose. It's pretty, pretty wild. They really needed one of those, um, Virgil, um, face me. No, just kidding. Um, but, um, but, um, speaking of props, where can I get those SEMA over the head, like Ram's horn style sunglasses? Because I, I really want them. I need to, I need uh, to. Larry Dallas was sporting a pair at the Miami, um, <laughs> WrestleMania weekend, um, the day after Chuck Taylor, uh, knocked him out and gave him two black eyes on the night before. Oh, wow. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess I could ask him. Um, they, my- they were selling them as, uh, as merch, um, uh, for quite a bit around that time. I think, um, uh, or am I, am I getting that confused with Christians? Cause Christian had the same. 
deal, right? And yeah, I, I think I think Seamus just look a little bit cooler. But yes, I think yeah, yes, Christian I never did. Actually, now if, if Seamus were actually sold as merch, but I think Larry Dallas got Seamus one of Seamus' pairs that weekend to hide his uh, his battered uh, face. But, yeah, uh, um, yeah. WrestleMania weekend festivities always. Always, always a good time. Yes. Um, like the time that you and I met each other at WrestleMania weekend. That was fun. That was almost, almost 10 years now come, coming up um, since I'm then. Not a, I'm not aware of any stories of anyone um, yeah. kicking each other's ass uh, at that weekend. Matt. Yes. Except Joe Gagne. Did we see Joe Gagne get in a fist fight with someone during that day? I, I, I cannot say that I was a witness to that, but. No, I thought I thought we saw. I thought it was like after we met up, Joe just walked off and started getting. Started, he, he started punching strangers. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like him. Yeah, um, but the authorities. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I was going to mention with Sema, there was a spot pretty early where um, where Roderick hits his first chop on Sema, and Sema sh- uh, sells it in an extremely entertaining way. He just walks around the ring in circles before flopping to the mat. And then when you combine that with Necro spinning around um, after getting hit with a toilet paper, a lot of guys are going to turn into butter on this show. Um, but um, I no I and as far as the uh, the delayed vertical suplex that you mentioned, I think like so we I remember at the fourth anniversary there were like there was one in every single match. And then there hasn't really been one since then. And I think the one that Strong did on SEMA here was like as long as all of the ones on the fourth anniversary combined. Like it was just one of the longest uh, delayed vertical suplexes that I can remember. It was really impressive. Uh, but no, but like as far as the match, you know, I just – yeah, it was it was great. There was also another spot like where um, SEMA takes Ares' blood and wipes it on the referee's shirt, which – I think I'd be pretty annoyed if I was the referee, but I guess I'm probably too germaphobic to be a wrestler in the first place. So maybe that's that's why. But no, I think you know. I definitely am. Yeah. Um, there was a live note from a fan that I did not mention. I think it's something like, um, it, well, it's in the main event. I didn't didn't include some in the notes, but it made me think it where a fan was like, uh, a "Homicide bled on my program, and I now have a program soaked in homicide blood." They meant that as like a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine, like, it all depends on the fan, because I imagine you would not be cool if you had, like, your laugh and the, what you were holding soaked in homicide's blood. I mean, nothing against homicide personally. Anyone's blood. Yeah, <laughs> like, you yeah, know. Exactly. But, um, but no, I mean, I mean, you guys talked about all the cool stuff in the match, so I don't really have to add to. But, no, I think this was a, a really great match, just really a good mix of, like, strong intensity, but also, you know, some of that cool, um, spectacular Dragon Gate stuff. But you know, Dragon Gate, the Dragon Gate guys. Like I said, like it was like the uh, the other match on the show with the Dragon Gate guys. It was a really solid mix. I think this was a little bit more in the American style, but still mixed in a lot of the cool Dragon Gate stuff. Yeah, I think. I mean, as far as like just quality wrestling match, this was the the best match of the night. Even though I like the other, I think the other one was, you know, I might have like just had more fun watching it. I think this was the match of the night uh, if we're being objective. The, the um, earlier match was like a really fun rom-com, and this was a, a really good drama th- or action movie. Yeah, thrill, thriller. Um, yeah. I, uh, I have a question for you guys I'd be, I'd be curious about, just as, as, as two people whose wrestling opinion I respect a great deal, but I know you're not like massive Dragon Gate uh, guys. Um, Naruki Doi, uh, like just under four years, I'd say, into his career at this point, really only in his first 
18 months of actually kind of being given a a significant push at this point and um you know he he was he was someone they had earmarked for kind of big things as kind of future of of the company what kind of impression did he as an individual make on you over the course of not just this match but the weekend in general was there anything in particular that you thought stood out about him as particularly good or yeah just anything at all just about doy that uh, that stood out to you or if nothing stood out he just kind of blended in that's interesting too. I think. Well, I'll, 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 if you don't mind, like, cause I, I know you probably have a lot of good stuff to say, so I'll just get my dumb thoughts out first. Um, hey, they're good thoughts. Stop. It. You haven't even heard them yet. Um, no, but as as far as Doyle, like, so I think it seemed very clear to me, even at the time, as someone who wasn't familiar with with the Dragon Gate too much, like, you know, I didn't know what his experience level was compared to the other guys, and it didn't really seem obvious to me that he was less experienced. Um, I think it seemed clear that he was positioned as like maybe like the number two, as far as being like, not in terms of star power, but in terms of like being like, this guy is presented as being a really good wrestler. Um, you know, that's why he was in the team with, with Seema here and got the tag title shot. And, you know, he would be continue to be in those positions. Um, you know, does it, doesn't he even win the ROH tag team title the next year? Uh, isn't he part of that team with us? With, was it Shingo? He, he does. He yeah. does. I was there. Big shot. Yes. And like, so, so, one of the more shocking uh, moments of had a wrestling show. <laughs> yeah, so I saw him as like, you know, maybe even like the second best wrestler of the group. Like, and again, this was just at a very limited exposure. But also, he didn't, his personality didn't, you know, shine through the way like, you know, obviously Seamus did or like Horaguchi's or someone like that. You know, I, I so there was a little bit of mix of that. So I think maybe the, the, the personality stuff he was still learning. But in terms of just being like, he almost felt like, the equivalent of a Roderick Strong to me of just like kind of like he gave this kind of badass impression and he was just super solid, but you know, wasn't totally a fully formed character. That was just my, of my limited exposure. That's how I saw him at the time. Yeah. I, th- I think it's interesting because around the USA time, he was like full on, like um, he was because he's, his English is really good. Um, so he would like been doing like a lot of the promos during DJSA and his personality really, came out but um yeah at this point when he came to the u.s it was very very much reserved which was actually in contrast to like 2005 was the year that his personality did take off in japan and he just obviously wasn't as comfortable with it to show it in the same way on a u.s trip like this but he he really did kind of like it just when he because he turns heel at the start of 2005 after being just this undercard young baseball he was second doy 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 which like it's like a baseball thing anyway um that they chant at the at the baseball games but um uh so uh yeah that was his gimmick and he was just this friendly undercard baby face and then they turn him heel put him with chima and make blood generation as as the group and um like they just let him let him just go as a heel and he totally gets over as as a heel personality and and the the future of the company type type thing and uh um but yeah it, i i i definitely don't think his personality shine true like that here in, in the u.s but i, I thought as just a worker and a really solid guy in these matches, he definitely gave a hell of a good accounting for himself. And like, you, you wouldn't think this was a guy who was 
still kind of like on the on the younger side of his career, seeing how polished and everything he was at this point in time. But uh, yeah. Um, Sorry, I, ste- I stepped on what Trevor was going to say. Yeah, well, I-, I was just going to say, I-, I think Doi probably got a little overshadowed this week. Because when you look at the other Dragon Gate guys on this weekend, and you look at the number of people that were probably seeing them for the first time, so many of them have very – you can get them – like from their performances this weekend very quickly, like dragon kid, you see him work just a couple minutes. You go, okay, small guy, where's the mask high flyer. You, you instantly kind of put him in a school of wrestlers that you've seen before. You know, you see Yoshino work for just like a minute to you go, Oh, that's the fastest human being I've ever seen in my life. Like you, you instantly get something about them that makes them distinctive. You know, Horiguchi instantly is trans like getting past the language barrier and getting everyone to chant H A J G E. And you know, his vibe, his whole vibe, you get very, quickly you know she just feels like the man um right it, it, felt, it felt like it felt like doi and saito were the two that you really saw l- the least of their personalities saito, yeah. saito i think even more so which was funny because he i think he was still the open to dream gate champ at this point or he was just about to, or he had just lost it but he was he is basically the the most pushed guy on home soil leading into this and he, like yeah, 2005 was built around his rise uh, on the babyface side. So, um, and winning the title at the start of 2006. Yeah, he would have still had it in, in March. So, um, yeah, it was. It is. I always forget that he was that his championship reign coincides with this like historic weekend for Dragon Gate because he was such a. He really was like the the sixth guy I thought out of out of the group. Absolutely. Like if you if you would just ask me after this weekend, like who who do you think is getting pushed the most and the least in Dragon Gate right now of the six you've seen based on how they were used and how they wrestled, Saito would have been like I would say, Oh, is he like a mid card guy? You know, especially like you know, he going wrestling kind of fifty fifty with Jimmy Yang on the first night and stuff like that. Just I mean he won, but you know, yeah, he is kind of takes a back seat to the other guys. But for Doy, I would say one thing you notice watching him this weekend is just you know, it's one thing to work the very fast pace, but to also kind of hit hard enough to have your moves feel like they have weight to him. And one thing you notice about Doi, I think, if you really pay attention on these shows, is like, I think his moves kind of have more weight than some of the other guys, but he still keeps up that pace, which is like a very hard balance to have, right? Like, you know, you can go fast, you can go hard. It's, it's hard for a lot of people to kind of do both. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I... I, I you know, probably did not appreciate him as much as, you know, like if we had watched Dragon Gaze, he deserved to be appreciated. But um, have, have you guys welcomed um because he was the, the ref in, in this match? So I'm not sure how how much he had been around at this point. But have you welcomed officially to ROH through the years uh, referee Jason Harding? Uh, I don't think we had a. I don't think we've been having grand welcomes for our refs lately. After, but uh, <laughs> since Ref Hansen, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that was just... probably the last time we talked an extended amount about a referee in a yeah, ring of honor. We might have shouted out the first time we saw. Oh, like that's Bryce Ramsburg. But I was really surprised to see Jason Harding. He's he's a current WWE ref, I believe. I'm not sure if he's main roster or NXT. He, doesn't do a lot even after this he doesn't do I, i'm pretty sure he doesn't do a lot of roh he, stuff he 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 would become like the main ref in dragon gate usa um which is like three four or five years later um when he's there so it's a uh, um yeah it was very interesting to me to see him pop up in a dragon gate match no no, no less uh um this far back so 
So, yeah, that brings us to the semi-main event, or I guess some would say the part of the double main event, the Ring of Honor world title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title when he defeats Lance Storm via submission, not with a half-crab, but with when he made him tap to the cattle mutilation. Okay, so... I, I'm interested in hearing what, what, what you guys had to say, especially Alan, because he was, you were talking about how you were interested in what we had to say about this. So I felt that kind of tipped things. Um, I'll go first on this one just because it's my turn, but I, I would say I thought this was a good match. Maybe even like a low, very good. I will also say, and maybe this will be controversial to some people, probably isn't, but of all the Danielson title defenses we've seen, this is my least favorite. I, I, I or, even if it's not, it might, I might like it. I'm not even sure, but it, it's on, definitely on the tier with the Steve Carino and the Chris Saban ones. For, and to be fair, Danielson hasn't had a bad match as champ so far, but I would put this on the low end. And I think one thing I remember watching this match is just like, oh yeah, I'm not like a huge Lance Storm fan. Like I don't hate him, but like, I can't remember ever, ever being very excited to see a Lance Storm match. And I kind of started to remember that as I watched this match. Um, and this might have been, I don't like, I don't know if this is peak Lance Storm or not. I'd have to revisit a lot of stuff, but Danielson certainly works as much, I would say, as if he wants to be careful just in case he isn't. This is a step slower, I would say, than most Ring of Honor matches. Um, Danielson controls most of the match. He feels like he built a, like, a lot of tiny little rests into it just in case Lance needs them. I know Lance did say at the end of the match he was surprised how tired he was, which we'll get to later. Um, you know, it isn't quite really a bam, bam, bam pace match until right near the end. It's also, I, I would say, a step more basic than a lot of Ring of Honor matches. Danielson does most of his usual offense, but, you know, it, it Lance gives Danielson, he seemed content to like kind of let Danielson run the show here. And when Lance was on offense, it was another thing I was reminded of, not to shit on Lance Storm, but I was starting to realize, oh, like, oh yeah, a lot of Lance Storm's offense doesn't look great. Like, he has an amazing super kick, he uses it here. He breaks up the cradle pile driver, which I thought was really cool. But some of his basic stuff, like just closed lines and strikes and those kind of moves, they look a little more awkward and looser than you'd actually like to see, than, more than like the general standard, I would say, for Ring of Honor at the time. And, um... But what is in the match, I think, is good enough. You know, Danielson works on Storm's back. You know, Danielson, is his, his current personality is in full form here. Um, the, round, the crowd really comes alive for Storm's single-leg crab and his late near falls. I will say, this crowd, whether they bought into Lance Storm could win or not, they got really up for whenever he had a big kind of chance to win. Um, overall, what I would the best way I could describe this match is I kind of consider Ring of Honor guest star appearances to be in two tiers. I would say tier one is like the Kobashi Dragon Gate appearances where guys come in and they're just going all out to have the best match they possibly could have. And then there's tier two and there's a, a, a wide range in this tier. But I would say on the scale of like Great Muda to Liger where they, they're putting what I would describe as an honest effort and they're giving you enough that you don't feel shortchanged and like they're trying to have a good match, but they're not giving you everything they have. And I would say the Lance, this Lance Storm performance feels more closer to that second tier where, you know, he's trying hard, but Trevor, I'm, I'm going to put an asterisk on that and say that I agree, but. I think this is everything Lance Storm has. Yeah, yeah, I just don't think Lance Storm is as 
good as Kenta Kobashi and Dragon Gate guys. And it's like, I think this is, I think like to Lance Storm, he gave the Kenta Kobashi effort here in terms of like, like this is as he put forth as good of a match as he could put forth here. And I think he put as much effort in as he could for what he considers a great wrestling match. If well, that makes sense. I was just about in, so I think that's a great transition. So elaborate, because it sounds like you are in line with my thinking here on this match. Yeah, I, I am. I am and in ways. And I went through, um, because like, historically what I've thought about this match was, oh yeah, it was really good. A really cool thing to have on the show. Um, Mid-range Danielson title match from his reign, but one that had kind of significance based on the opponent. Um, so, like, say more than like, like I'd have it in the, the category of like, say the Chris Sabin match at, yeah. at uh, Showdown in Motown, but it's like more significant because it's, Orlando Storm in 2006 as opposed to Chris Saban in 2005. So, um, so, but I never really analyzed it as closely as I did for knowing I was going to be talking about it here. So, as I was watching it, it was like, <laughs> I had so many thoughts. Um, and they're going to go in like different directions. So first direction I'll throw at you. I think this is Lance Storm's best singles match of all time. It's um, just as a caveat, um, it's his longest. Yeah. There there you go. Um, it's kind of amazing he has never had a match this long. And I think when I, when I go I'll explain I think I have a theory as to why, but uh but you go uh, go ahead. Um so I think it's his best ever singles match. But I don't think it's great. I think it's quite good. I think it hits a ceiling that you're going to have with Lance Storm because Landstorms to me, his biggest limitation as a wrestler, especially as a babyface, is just how low his intensity levels are and how when he tries to act intense, it comes off as hokey. So it's like almost better he doesn't try to act intense and just is low intensity. Um, and when you're in there with Brian Danielson, a guy who hits as hard and fights as hard as Danielson does so often, it can really look like a really noticeable contrast in a bad way when you're throwing clotheslines like Lance Storm through here. And I know like back in the day, like on the DVD VR board and stuff like Lance was a like a figure who a pariah <laughs> yeah he was you know th- those those guys did not like their landstorm and landstorm like he he went back against the the criticisms they they had of him and and stuff like that so it was kind of like yeah um but, but like i like to me i i never really got hugely into that kind of landstorm criticism i was you know i was on I was kind of schooled to wrestling um, smarkdom by like Paris Slam magazine, which was very high on Lance Storm, um, you know, coming out of ECW. Like he was like he was like the work rate guy in ECW, you know, and 
if you're the work rate guy in ECW, like Power Slam is going to love you because they loved ECW and they loved work rate. So Lance was a very popular figure. And then I get on the Internet and like gradually I'm like very much in coming into the world like Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer, who are like huge Lance Storm fans. Yeah. And and they like think very highly of Lance's work and particularly Brian who's wrestling himself and was always a a person who and I have I'm not criticizing this in any way shape or form because if I had to wrestle a match I'd love to wrestle a match with a Brian Alvarez or a Lance Storm who I could be fairly well sure aren't gonna hurt me you know but for me as a fan I'm not super interested in Oh, look how safe Lance Storm is. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that just so entertaining how safe he is? Um, but like to someone like Brian Alvarez or like a Buddy Wayne or someone like that, you know, talking about Lance Storm, they're going to talk about him with an air of respect. And then to me, as someone who's like listening to their audio and, and contributing on the message board i'm going to be of that same opinion i'm going to be like lance is a great worker he's so safe but um you know as i actually kind of like form my own opinions and think about what i do and don't enjoy as i watch it it's like eh, lance is you know there's there that a lot of the criticisms that would have been that the dvd vr guys would have had about him are accurate but maybe presented in a way that you can see why they would get a prickly response from a landstorm who's you know if you're someone who's out there focused on trying to um uh like take care of your fellow workers and you have a great reputation and people think very highly of you and then uh you come online or whatever and you hear these guys saying Ah, he's shit. He doesn't know how to wrestle. He's or he's whatever they would like, whatever like um, uh, very uncushioned statement would have been being thrown out there by like a, a Phil Schneider or someone like <laughs> like you can see how it's gonna rub someone the wrong way. Yeah. So um, like yeah, Lance was low intensity, and it was a stark contrast to Brian. And it kind of you mentioned Trevor about how it kind of felt like Brian was almost not wanting to hurt Lance, but I think it was more that he was just going at Lance's kind of pace. I don't, as opposed to being worried about hurting him, so to speak. Um, I, I don't, yeah. Uh, but the other thing on, on the flip side, you, you see a lot of the positives of Lance storm here, his incredible timing and his, like his just ability to, um, you know, be in the right place and do, have things look good in terms of the actual athletic execution of things, not necessarily the intensity of like a strike, but like say a great example was um, the misdiving headbutt that Danielson has where Lance rolls out of the way at just like, I don't know how he left it as long as he did to roll out of the way. The timing on it was so perfect that it looks up until Danielson lands, it looks like he's about to hit his head button and Lance just disappears from under him and the crowd react just great to it because it looks so good. It just looks like Lance saves his own bacon at the last millisecond and it gets a great pop. And 
Um, but yeah, there was like Lance has a comeback, one of his first kind of comebacks early in the match where, or it, it seemed it was early in the grand scheme of, of the match, but at the time it felt like it might have been the main comeback and there wasn't much of a reaction because it was, again, quite low intensity stuff. And I was like, oh, this match isn't really working out too good. But then they kind of kicked it into another level as they went on about five, six minutes longer. And that's when you got like the gotch pile driver, you got the great tease on the half crab, and you got a couple other things. That by the time the match ended, I was like, hey, that, that was... That was really good. Hell of a performance from Landstorm. He did he did very well there. Um, and the crowd enjoyed it. The crowd reacted big uh, for the, the key stuff. Maybe there was points where the reaction wasn't as big as you wanted. But when it mattered, it was. Like, every fan there seemed to be very happy at the end of the match. And most importantly, I think, Danielson looked like he you know he looked like a world beater um going in there and handily taking care of lance like lance really put put him over as strong as he could and um you know it's kind of like mission accomplished at that point and it's like that really is lance storm in a nutshell he's you know give him a mission he's going to it's going to be mission accomplished you give him a job he's going to do it and it just maybe it won't be done in the most spectacular um intense way uh imaginable but it he's gonna it, he's gonna tick the boxes yeah matt now i'm really interested in what you think since al and i have gone on about like are you in agreement or did you are you harder on this match or are you higher on this match I think I'm very slightly higher on the match. Um, I think I'm more in line with Alan. I mean, I know you two had similar opinions, but I think I'm more in line with Alan than I am with you in that this was obviously not like a great match, but I do think it was pretty solidly in the very good camp. Um, and I definitely think that Danielson had less effective title defenses prior to this. Like, uh, you know, like I, I don't think that the, uh, you know, that the Carino or the, uh, or the Saban, or even the Romero match, as fun as that was, was like quite as like a full meal as this match. And I think this. Well, I think the Romero match is better than this easily. But yeah, I, I, def- I mean, I could see an argument. I, I don't. I don't I, for me, I, they're they're close. Um, um, I think I think this was better than the Hero match too, honestly. Um, which I you know I wasn't a huge fan of that match, although I think it was. I mean, I think they're all good. Like you know, I um. Yeah, he hasn't had a bad title. Yeah, I mean, if, if if you were to ask me which match I find more entertaining between this and the uh, the title defense he had against AJ Styles, I think I enjoyed this more. And maybe part of it is just like the crowd heat, you know, and this felt more important. You know, I don't know, I, you know, but I um again, like I don't think it was a great match because I I think that Storm Storm doesn't isn't exactly compatible with the what we expect from an ROH main event. And I think you know part of it is you know we mentioned you know the length of the match. I mean, if you think about it. When would Lance Storm have ever really had the opportunity to have a 30-minute singles match? Like, not in Smoky Mountain. I mean, maybe in his early days of his career, but I don't know how much in, like, the early indies in Canada that he wrestled in, they allowed guys to have 30-minute singles matches if they weren't top stars. The death tours of that yeah. order. Yeah, so maybe there. I, but, I like, the, um, you know, ECW didn't really, you know, they were more of like they wanted their... 
pay-per-view would be yeah. the only thing. Like, I know Just Incredible and Jerry Lynn had a couple of long matches on pay-per-view. Did Lance and Jerry ever get a long pay-per-view match? No, I mean, I think the longest singles match Storm had on pay-per-view was like a 16 or 17-minute match against Rob Van Dam in 99. Um, and I feel like those were the long matches. Like, you know, like one, there was one 30-minute match between RVD and Jerry Lynn, I think, or close to it anyway. Because I think it was like the, the one right after the 20 minute draw. But in general, ECW liked to have their shows kind of move fast. And like a long match in ECW in that era was like 17, 18 minutes. You know, and then once um, Storm went to WCW, it was firmly in the post Russo era. And they weren't going to have 30 minute matches like ever. And then in WWF, when he came, only the main eventers got to have matches of that length. So, and he was never a main eventer there. So. You know, when would he have had the chance? So I think it makes sense. You know, this was ROH's style and it wasn't the style anywhere else. This is also when did he have world title matches? Just just pretty much in, in ECW. And there they didn't have they rarely had matches this long. The other thing is about, you know, the reaction that the Death Valley Driver board had to him versus, you know, the reputation maybe he had among some other types of fans or Power Slam magazine or whatever. If you think about what people considered a great work rate wrestler in the nineties in America versus what they considered a great work rate wrestler after the ROH era. I'm so glad you said this, because it it, bleeds perfectly into something I was going to say. Yeah, it changed a lot. Like, I mean, first of all, stiffness was not a thing in American wrestling in the 90s, right? Like, like, I mean, obviously there were Japanese-influenced guys, and like if you watch like Chris Benoit, you know, he definitely was hard-hitting. But there were, you know, and and his chops were hard. But it's different than like the strikes that you get even in this era in ROH and even nowadays on uh, on TV, even even honestly for some WWE matches. Um, but, um, you know, it was much more like the Calgary guy, like Bret Hart and Owen Hart, you know, they, who Bret obviously always talked about how much pride he took. And so, you know, I work snug, I don't work stiff. You pretty much had to go to Vader to see a guy who was like, just like really laying it in. And then of course, you talk about ECW, which was a brawling based promotion and how many of those guys really had like good looking strikes in ECW? Like, I know Rob Van Dam is sort of famous for like having the bad combination of his strikes didn't look very impressive, but also he hurt people, um, with them. But like, you know, like I don't think Sandman had like great punches or Sabu or Dream, Dream, you know what I mean? Like these weren't like the, like the, the strike masters of the world. Um, so like, Lance Storm really was a great worker in that era. He did what you wanted a great worker to do. His strikes didn't look good. His chair shots didn't look good, but he had great finesse. He had great timing. His drop kicks looked great. His leg lariats looked great. And I think he brought all that to this match. You know, I think you could tell he was winded at different times, but also, you know, again, he hadn't wrestled in almost a year. And before that, he hadn't wrestled a lot. And this was his longest match ever. And so you combine all those things and it's like, I think, yeah, I think he put on a, a pretty good performance and, you know, obviously he let Danielson carry him through some of the aspects that weren't his, his strong suits. Um, and yeah, like, I think it took a while for the crowd to buy that he could win. Um, but you know, those later, you know, um, half crabs and some of the later near falls really worked pretty well. Actually, something I noticed as someone who has, you know, watched a lot of Danielson from this era, Trevor, when we watched the, famous match he has against Kenta at Glory by Honor um, 4 in, or 5, I guess it was. I think it was, no, it was, it was 5. Yeah, Glory by Honor 5 in uh, in September of this year. 
watch the f- closing sequence of that match. I think you're going to notice that a lot of it is taken from this match. Some of like the like Danielson holding on to the tiger suplex and like the sudden like cradle into and then he holds on to the wow. cattle mutilation. Good, good eye, Matt. Yeah, I, I just because I, I've watched that match a lot, so I really recognize that. Um, but um, obviously, it's a little bit more effective there because that's a bigger match. You know, Kenta fit. You know, is, um, meshes with Danielson a little bit better. He has he has better chemistry. But I think you know, like I think you're right, Alan. Like Storm did what he can do here, and I think it amounted to something pretty good, even though it wasn't quite up to the top level ROH standards. Um, two funny things that I will mention. One, Can I just say, um, yes, because it ties into your 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 nineties thing. Um, sure, per- perfectly. Um, so, like, I was going to make the point of how, like, if you take out Brett and Sean, and even then, I'm not not sure with those two, but take out Brett and Sean, who are like the absolute top two, and Vader, who's like an an anomaly. If you look at like the other heralded quote great workers of the 90s um how many of them would have had like a great roh title style match in 2006 like chris candido probably wouldn't have like chris candido when he was like doing stuff when he had his resurgence on the indies sadly before he died it was doing a lot of comedy shtick and old school southern stuff which was awesome but like it wasn't like a main event versus Brian Danielson. I would have liked to see it. Yeah, what it looked like. But you know, even Malenko never really would ha- like had this kind of match. At least not. At least not in the U.S. And Malenko, Owen. Um, but Hennig. What about Hennig? What about Hennig? I don't know. Well, Hennig was more. Hennig, given the nineties, was already true. Yeah, no. I, I honestly, I think that the best bet for like Kurt Hennig would have been like Young in nineteen eighty six. Uh, AWA Kurt Hennig. Yeah, maybe. yeah. I mean, I, th- I think Benoit. I think Benoit and Brian Danielson would have had a hell of a match. I will say that. It's funny because I kind of think of Benoit as like a Japanese wrestler more yeah. than a North American wrestler, just because the amount of time he spent in Japan in in the nineties. Yeah, but I, I don't think I don't think Jericho of that era would have really done so much better than Storm in that era. I mean, no. I mean Jericho's I mean, Jericho, Jericho's great and he's adapted a lot, but like you know, I don't. I think it would have kind of looked similar to what Storm did. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, just what what a great worker was really did change um, between the nineties and the two thousands for sure. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I want. I know you're going to talk about. It, so I just wanted to say because I want because there's so many things you guys have said late on this show that I was going to say. So I don't want to give this away. But you said there's a couple of funny things you want to get to on this, so I want you to get to them. But I want to say, is one of them relating to a chant? Because I think I know one thing you're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. One of them is, although I don't know if it's what you're looking for. But here's the first funny thing. It's funny how Landstorm taps out on his butt. That's the first one. He just he just starts patting his own butt. And, you know, usually, I mean, guys, guys tap to the cattle mutilation all the time, but they usually don't just, like, start patting their butt. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> Um, and the other one, so was this the first ever you still got it chant? I don't know, but I, it, I was going to say that too. Was that all three of them? I thought, I thought it might, I think it might have been, I, I, you know, it could have been in TNA first, but I can't think of an obvious one before this. This was definitely one of the, one of the first, one of the first. I wasn't even going to mention that was, I wasn't even thinking about the first, but what I was thinking of is just to give people some context. They're chanting. I was going to ask you guys, when do you think it's appropriate, like the, the time that has to pass to give a you still got? Because let's give some context here. Lance Storm 
had been, had wrestled 10 months earlier. He had been, he, he had not really wrestled much in the previous two years, but also at the time of this match, I just looked it up. He was 36 years old and they're acting like it's amazing that after 10 months away, Lance Storm kissed it. Like, I, I feel like if you're not even 40 yet, you you almost should not be allowed to chant. You still got it for somebody. Like, but but if this is the but if this is the invention of the chant, don't they get to decide when it when it can happen? But but here's the other thing. It's hard for me to laugh at this. You still got a chant when some of the absurd. You still got a chance. We got in TNA over the years were like pretty remarkable. So this one didn't stand out to me as particularly egregious. I guess he was five years younger than Finn Balor is now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, thirty six. A lot of w, a lot of wrestlers these days, like that's considered like, oh, you're just ready to start getting your main event push. Like, and he had been gone New, for New, ten New months. Japan, New Japan just announced a tournament to highlight their younger wrestlers um, with a new title, and like eight of the sixteen guys in the tournament are over forty. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah, that's amazing. It just, yeah, and for more important, I mean, Lance Storm, you know, when he was basically like 30, early 36, 35, I think, actually, decided like, yeah, it's a good time to retire, like, you know, from full-time <laughs> wrestling. And nowadays, again, people will be like, you're just getting started. And, yeah, that was kind of an amazing thing. And, again, I guess my other note from this match, too, was Lance doing the 16-count delayed vertical suplex. I know I mentioned earlier, but I just felt so bad. Like, like that would have seemed so much more impressive if you hadn't just seen a 60-second, a minute-long delayed vertical suplex. But poor guy. Um, Also, he tapped out on his own butt. Well, maybe he, Lance Lance famously loves to shoehorn in the fact that he uh, wears a thong during his matches. He <laughs> mentions this a lot, both on Twitter and on podcasts over the years. And uh, maybe he was just trying to alert everyone that, hey, it's my bare ass. <laughs> so we do have a, a bunch of notes from this match, obviously, because Lance Storm was, is, is one of the more online wrestlers of that era and more plugged in. But this one, I think, given our discussion, is kind of funny from The Observer. Dave Meltzer wrote, based on live reports, he wrote this. It was as good as anyone had seen Storm wrestle, and he actually wrestled at a level where he could be a credible champion for Ring of Honor. Uh, um, the most impressive thing was the crowd getting really into Storm's near falls because everyone deep down had to know he wasn't going to win the title. So I don't know if I would put him on the could be credible. There was, there was one point for it. Um, I forget which near fall it was, but the way the camera was pointed, you could see like five rows of fans all go to their feet and all have that same kind of anxious look of, oh, oh my, I think it was during the half crap. It was like they all came to their feet. They all were like thinking, are we about to see the title change? Also, I think some fans did buy it. Also, Trevor, let me ask you this. At this point, who would you have considered a more credible ROH champion, Lance Storm or Jerry Lynn? I think Jerry Lynn. Uh, I I think he has more indie. I think he's a more exciting wrestler to those fans. I'd say Jerry if he hadn't already had the matches he had had in ROH, yeah. where he was just kind of like undercard in a four way type. And and the matches weren't that good either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think if you hadn't had Jerry Lynn ever make an appearance and you built him up like they had Lance Storm here then probably Jerry, but with how they presented both guys up to this point, I would have said Lance. 
And then we go to a Lance Storm torch talk he did after this match. We have just not going to honestly read the whole thing, but we, I have a few isolated quotes. One was a response to, has, had he seen Ring of Honor before this match? Um, Lance said, they sent me the last five or six Brian Danielson matches on DVD. So I watched five or six of his matches because we had never worked before. So I want some kind of clue of what I was in for. So that's kind of interesting that that was basically his entire frame of reference was just five or six matches on a DVD. Um, Wade asked him, how good is Brian Danielson? Lance said, the thing is, I hate comparing guys because everybody's different. He is certainly excellent. I really enjoyed it. It was really easy. We went 27 minutes, which is the longest match I've had in probably over 10 years. He is certainly quite good. I wouldn't want to compare him to a Kurt Angle or a Rock or a Chris Jericho or even myself because everybody's different. Certainly, he's extremely talented and a lot of fun to work with. Then they asked about his retirement status, and he said, extremely semi. Gabe Sapolsky approached me last year, wanting to know if I'd be interested in coming in and working a shot. I really wasn't. He convinced me to come down and appear at a show. I watched the show, and he wanted me to keep an eye on Brian Danielson, and we did an in-ring thing for him. He sort of pressured me into it a little bit, and I was intrigued. The Ring of Honor show was really good. It had all the positive vibes of ECW. It intrigued me a little bit more, sort of thinking about it. The more you're away, the more these opportunities that keep coming up, you go, oh, this might be fun, that might be fun. You keep putting it off. Then you realize you won't be able to put them off forever. So maybe you decide to take the opportunities that do come especially with them being in Chicago. It worked out to be a really good opportunity, so I decided to take it. So, you know, I, I like the idea, like, I mean, it makes it sound like Gabe really did the full press to kind of convince Lance because, you know, the idea that he, you know, kind of really did have to talk him into it. And then we get some of his more detailed stuff. We get from the stormwrestling.com, Lance Storm commentary. Again, Lance is one of the early guys to actually have like an online blog. He wrote, I got just one excerpt from it. He wrote, I've got to say Ring of Honor runs one hell of a show. It seems to have all the love, passion, and hard work of ECW without the chaos, disorganization, and bounce checks. When I hit the ring that night, the crowd response was amazing, and I was greeted by a huge bombardment of red and white streamers. This is a Japanese tradition, and I've always been a huge fan of the concept. I could not have received a warmer welcome, and again, I thank everyone for it, as this helped make this night one of the greatest in my career. Um... I still haven't decided how I feel about the match itself. By all accounts, it was a great one. All the fan reports I've read put it over strong, and there's no doubt that the live crowd ate it up. But it just felt strange to me. Part of the problem, I think, is that it was such a different match for me. The match was a different style than I'm used to. I've always tried to adapt and follow the win in Rome philosophy, so I attempted to work more to the Ring of Honor style that Brian Danielson is used to. I also had to work as a babyface, which is unnatural for me now, and to be honest, I don't much care for it. Those things aside, though, I do feel it was a strong performance. This like a landstorm obituary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't much care for him. <laughs> landstorm is like the master of the most negative, positive speeches. You know, um, I do feel it was a strong performance, even more so considering I've been inactive for almost two years, and it's been a full ten months since my last match. In all honesty, I was a little disappointed. I was as tired as I was after the match until Games of Palsy point out that we went approximately twenty-seven minutes, which would be the longest single match I've had since early nineteen ninety-five. So so there you go. So there you go. That was so yeah. So it's been since definitely before ECW. I guess probably would have been where, where would he have had that match? Japan? Yeah, maybe like War or like the I, Indies I, I, or something. He he wasn't having a, a singles match that length in Japan. No. Did he do chance. anything in Smoky Mountain with the Thrill Seekers? Yeah, it had to have been a tag team match. But did you say singles match or single match? 
um, he, the longest single match I've had. So he didn't well, say singles, he said single. So that, that, that sounds like he's saying anything, period. It could, well, it certainly could have been some tags then, but like when Jericho broke his arm in Smoky Mountain, Lance did a lot of single stuff on the house shows, and you could certainly see him and like, I don't know, um, Tom Pritchard going ahead and just saying, oh, well, the, maybe like another match to get pulled from the show or something. It was like, oh, yeah, Dr. Tom and Lance will go out there and work double the length or something like that. So just like 15 minutes of the match is like the heel, just like doing shtick around ringside, that type of thing. And then uh, Lance ends by saying, again, I would like to thank everyone who had anything to do with that night in Chicago. I want to thank Ring of Honor for convincing me to return to the ring, and even more so for not making me regret it. I cannot say good enough good things about the company and how I was treated. So he had very fond things to say about the overall vibe of the promotion. And then finally, PW Insider, the last note on this. Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky turned Storm's praise into a mutual admiration society over the weekend when contacted, commenting, quote, Lance Storm was great to deal with. He hasn't changed at all since I knew him in ECW. He is a down-to-earth guy with no eagle and a total professional in every sense of the word. He looked better than ever in his match against Brian Danielson on April 1st. I'm someone who has seen all his ECW matches, and I will go on record as saying that the Storm versus Danielson match was the best Storm match I have ever seen. I hope to have him back in Ring of Honor at some point, but he really isn't looking to do a lot of dates. I hope he will return as a special guest on occasion when the situation is right for him and for the promotion. So... You know, Lance would eventually come back to Ring of Honor for a couple, you know, a little bit. Actually, a couple of different periods. And it's funny because Lance and all this is kind of talking like he was thinking about being retired for good, you know, until Ring of Honor convinced him. But from here, like, he is wrestling, like, not even, I would say, semi-regularly. But I think after, like, a month or two after this, he's working in the UK for a couple shots. Like, he, from this point on, decides, like, oh, for a long time, like, if there's something interesting that kind of comes up, I'll I'll, I'll take a shot. I'll, I'll work a match. And... This kind of starts that for him. So um, after the match, we get best in the world chance at Brian Danielson. Then thank you, Lance. He and Danielson shake hands. Storm gets a please come back chant. And then uh, Danielson leaves him. Again, Storm really does seem to be really kind of touched by this. Next, we get an ad for ringofhonorvideos.com. Next, we get a recap video of the Colt Cabana homicide feud leading to finally the main event, the Chicago Street Fight. Colt Cabana defeated Homicide. Scored to the ring, of course, by Julie Smokes via pinfall in 26 minutes, 35 seconds after he hit the Colt 45. Matt, it seems only thing that you get to go first. We've been on this road. We've watched every, rewatched every step of this feud. We've, we've both agreed that it was really, it was pretty good. Started to go a little too long. It finally ends here in the most biggest over the top way. What'd you think about this, man? It's interesting. Um, so overall, I'll just say right off the bat, I, think it ended up being really good like you know i, I mean I, I i really enjoyed watching it and i think the ending you know came off well um so i don't want it to sound like i'm negative really but you know there were negatives to it um first of all there's this was a chicago street fight which immediately evoked and they intentionally played off of memories of the other chicago street fight which is you know one of the great brawls in roh history the one from death before dishonor to night two with a punk and steel against moff and whitmer um and this you know couldn't live up to that um they definitely had some callbacks to it right the most memorable being the everyone throws chairs in the ring um the other one being the barbed wire board right that was wasn't that from that match also there was a big leap from a um from the top rope through 
through a table on the outside. That's something that happened on that on in that match. Um, but there are also a lot of callbacks to things that happened in the Cabana homicide feud. Um, you know, early on, Cabana pulls out a wire hanger, um, and then you know, at one point, homicide throws a bottle of Drano into the ring. Never actually uses it or anything, but you know, just references to the feud. Luckily, no one's no one's trying to cut anybody's tongue out. I did not notice any scissors in the match. Just just ghetto forks. Um, uh, so so here's the thing. Like this, so this was really it was a long match and it was entertaining the whole way. And you know, the crowd was tired, but they got into the big spots. Um, there, the the thing that I thought was a little bit incongruent with the rest of the feud was Homicide was so dominant in the rest of the feud. Like whereas you know you know Cabana would get a little bit of offense and then Homicide would just destroy him. And here. Cabana really like couldn't be stopped, you know. He obviously like he bled, you know, and like it's not. But Homicide bled a lot more, um, and Cabana was pretty dominant for most of the match. Like you know, obviously Homicide got offense. It wasn't like a squash or anything, but I would say Cabana's offense way outweighed Homicide's, which was weird. You know, you'd think you know Homicide would dominate, and then Cabana would finally make his big comeback. But it was really a Cabana-oriented match. so, you know, Homicide was kind of making comebacks a lot of the time. Um, but the other thing was there was just so much stopping to look under the ring for stuff. Like, just like at one point, at one point near the end of the match, actually, Cabana looked under the ring, I assume for like tape. And when he couldn't find it, he was just like, ah, oh, fuck it. And he used his own, um, his own wrist tape to tie smokes to the, to the, uh, to the rope. I I just like the, you know, but they look under the ring for barbed wire boards. They look under the ring for a ladder. They looked under the ring for a table, and you could sort of get away with that when it's a tag team um, street fight because you know guys are fighting while one guy's going under the ring. But when it happens so much in a singles match, it just becomes a little bit distracting. Um, that said, there was cool stuff in this match. Obviously, they you know the, the storyline was that. Cabana was trying to find peace because he was like super traumatized. It was actually kind of funny at the beginning. Cabana like looking all traumatized and like beaten up and bruised coming out to the Copacabana theme. <laughs> like it was just, you know, it was that kind of dichotomy. I mean, I guess it kind of worked in a way, but I don't know if that's what they were going for. But, you know, they, they bring out the ladder pretty quickly. And actually, for the second night in a row, when they pull out the ladder, it's completely covered in toilet paper. And it just made me think, like, do they have garbage bags? Because it seems like they just, like, they took the toilet paper and they just throw it all under the ring, even though the guys are going to use stuff under the ring later. It seems like they could just put them in garbage bags. But anyway, um, not that big of a deal. Um, yeah, there at one point, um, Homicide hits a... A really cool-looking tornado DDT onto the ladder, which gets the first holy shit chant of the night, or of the match at least. Um, then you know they did the splash through the table. The barbed wire board comes out, and they really don't use it for a very long time. It's like it's just sitting there. Um, uh, they, they, they try to send each other into the board, but don't really get. They don't really actually do it. There's a uh, the spot where Cabana actually takes the fork out of Homicide's boot. And does the fork stab. And I still am trying to figure out, you know, and again, I know we've asked this before and it seems naive when I say it, but when they, when they do like the big fork stab and homicide starts bleeding, does he blade or is it from the fork? 
Because I feel like it could, I really do feel like it could be from the fork. Like, it could be like, yeah, you just hit me with the fork and I'll start bleeding all over. Because it does seem like the blood comes from, like, a few different points. I don't know. Like, do you think? I believe it's, uh, it's a little of both. A little of um, both, yeah. It, it kind of, yeah. I, I think they kind of, uh, oh, there'd be a blade handy there. And if they feel they need more color, then they'd blade also but yeah no a lot of times with uh, homicide and with abdullah and people like that like they would you would like sometimes you would see the blood actually start and the cuts actually open up as the guy is getting like if you got yeah like like there have been times where it's been shot like that and you can actually see the the fork doing the actual damage so um yeah they i those guys that use the forks, like they just know as best you can a way to how to do that in a way that you know gets color and doesn't. Um, I was gonna say doesn't scar you up too badly, but like uh, look at that. Well, when you do it, when you do it enough, when you do it enough times, yeah. Um, you know, usually, usually homicide's not on the receiving end of it, and I guess I guess Colt did a good job. They also at one point. Cabana throws a whole bunch of rubbing alcohol into Homicide's bloody face, and Homicide does such a great job of selling the pain of that alcohol that I'm like, that must have actually been rubbing alcohol. Like, have, have you guys since the pandemic started, or even before the pandemic, if you're a, a, such sanitary individuals, have you ever used hand sanitizer and um, very quickly after using it, rubbed your eye? Oh, it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, like that's what I think. Like, cause you know, sometimes when they do that, I'm like, oh, it must have just been water. But like, I feel like the way Homicide sold it, it was like, this is a, such a good selling job that he might have just been like, yeah, actually throw rubbing alcohol in my face so I can really sell it like it hurts. I, I mean, I don't know. What we have is the cuts on the hand, and then you forget you have little cuts on your hand or something, and you put the sanitizer on it, and you quickly like. Like, oh, that hurts. Like, you quickly yeah. realize, yeah. remember. During winter, if you're not using yeah. hand moisturizer. Yeah, yeah. The, oh. so, I mean, sometimes using the hand sanitizer so much causes the cuts on the hand, but... Oh, we definitely couldn't be rasters, guys. Yes, no, <laughs> definitely not. But now, Here I am talking about, like, the like. We're, we're, I like that we're reviewing, you know, like this incredibly violent, bloody match, and I'm, I'm about to be like, guys, you know what's the worst? Eczema on your thumb. It's, it's really bad. <laughs> like, this is the, this is the pain that just doesn't go away. Yes. Um, the spot, so like, you know, so then like they finally get to the spot where Homicide tells the fans to throw chairs into the ring, which of course they do. And like, at one point, like, Cabana's getting into the ring while the chairs are being thrown and a chair whacks him in the head. And it's yeah. just like, oh my fucking God, like, it's ridiculous. And then when they finally do the big spots on the, you know, on the chairs, you know, just like they did in the other match, Colt superplexes Homicide onto the chairs, which just seems like way too dangerous. Like, I, I just like that. There's just so many ways that could go wrong. Like, I don't know why they felt like they like, oh, yeah, we got this. We know how to take suplexes off of really high heights onto a pile of chairs. Um, just, Didn't you hear Matt? Superplexes are like nothing. There, just not an yeah. impactful move whatsoever. Onto a pile of chairs, and then, so that oh, later on, like huh? I, I'm, I'm very much for anyone who yeah. listens to yeah. this show a year later, like I do. I'm, I'm very much giving a dated uh, <laughs> current Twitter discourse reference. With that I think I'm not even. I don't even know that reference. But uh, the match <laughs> recently ended with a superplex, and so people started to debate whether or not a superplex it, is a valid was, move. It was basically like someone who's probably a younger wrestling fan will like retweet. This NXT 
finish and was like, what? A suplex was the finish? <laughs> what? And then you get all these, like, crusty 45-year-olds. Oh, you never heard of Barry Wynn? <laughs> no, they probably haven't heard of Barry Wynn. <laughs> only, the only Wyndham we know of is Wyndham Rotunda. Um, but, um... Yeah, so, like, I, I, the one point Homicide then hits, like, kind of a messed up Pepsi plunge, which I guess was supposed to be on chairs, but it really wasn't. Um, so then he gets a two-count off of that. Then he hits a lariat. Cabana does a really big kick out. Then Homicide holds Cabana for Smokes. But, of course, Cabana moves, and Smokes runs into Homicide. And this is when they get to the spot where um, Cabana looks under the ring, and he's like, I got fuck, I can't find the tape. Let me just use my ring tape. So Smokes has to really sell that he can't get out of, like, this really poorly tied tape that's holding him to the rope. Which, you know, admirable job by Smokes there. Um, so then, like, we get these final spots. So the, the barbed wire board is still there. Cabana has not used it yet. He drags a table into the ring. He sets it up on top of the barbed wire board. And then, basically, the, the uh, Homicide chucks a chair at his head, tries a top rope ace crusher, and, but then goes for a Rana off the top. But Cabana turns it into a powerbomb through the table onto the barbed wire, um, which gets a two count. The Cabana hits a big lariat, gets a two count. And finally, Cabana hits the Colt 45 and yells, please, 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 as the ref counts three. He gets his big win, gets a really big pop. Um... You know, I so like it was dramatic. It was entertaining. They really did keep it entertaining the whole way. I still don't think it was great. There were still things that bothered me about it. As far as the post match, I guess I'll save that till after you all talk about the match. Yeah. Alan, what do you think about this? Um, well, first of all, I just want to rewind a little bit to the pre-match video. Um, I, I hope you guys took as much in, and maybe you've seen so much of the few that you didn't need it recap. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's that's the way I felt about it. Yeah, <laughs> I I just greatly appreciate it because they decided to uh, set this uh, montage of the few to a song which felt right out of like a late night surfing montage from Point Break. <laughs> I just like the concept of a late night surfing montage, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it was oh, this, this song was amazing. It was yeah, very eighties drama movie kind of deal. But um, uh, yeah, just yeah, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves on their surfboards, like competing against each other in the twilight with the moon in the background. Like, this is what happens that. when you have to find stock music because you can't afford any other music. Yeah, that's that's what I pictured as we saw like homicide like throwing Drano down Cabana's throat. But uh, yeah, um, look, I think the best thing I'd say about this match is that it something it it allows for one of the talking points that has always been my big kind of talking point about this show. When I used to argue this as being the best Ring of Honor show, I I don't think I I think that anymore. I think was surpassed i'm not even sure if it was the best at the time but there was a while where i i considered it the best or hate show and one of the reasons i did was because of the variety and i think this offered up something that was unlike anything else on the show you know this big wild street fight this emotional too it was emotional emotional few blow off yeah like this was unlike anything else on the show. It came at the end of the show. Nothing was really going to be able to follow this, I don't think. So um, 
Yeah, I also think that it um, it was cool that all three nights of this triple shot uh, ended with completely different main events. Um, you see Danielson Roderick the night before, and the big ta- big eight was it an eight man tag match in Detroit. No, um, I think I think you're thinking of the next year. This the, the one the actually it was Joe and Daniels that ended the match, that ended the show oh, in Detroit yeah, this year. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I'm getting that confused. But anyway, it was it. It really stood out, and um, it had its flaws, you know. It certainly had its flaws, but as far as great brawls in ROH history, like, there have been better, like some of the Steen, Generico, Cabana, Carino stuff, the Homicide Carino stuff, but we've also seen Ring of Honor brawl feud-enders fall a hell of a lot flatter than this did. If you think of, like, Punk and Raven and, and a, a, quite a few other examples, this was this was very good. Um, and for a feud that was an <laughs> up and down, to say the least, um, and that's kind of putting it nicely, um, probably more down than up, uh, it ended on a I think a pretty decent in terms of the match. We'll see what you guys think about the the post match, but in terms of the match, it ended on a positive note. Not like a home run. Oh my god, one of the greatest matches ever. But for how the feud had been, I I think going into it, you'd have taken this match uh, as the the end. Like yeah, you you you'd have taken this because it was. It, it had some great stuff in it. It had the crowd, and it had the uh, it had the edge and the the, the emotion. Um, and yes, in execution, there were some things that maybe were a little. I agree with you, Matt. That there was too kind of too much looking around under the ring and stuff like that. Um, but then again, maybe that was Cabana selling his concussion. He forgot where everything was. He kept looking on the wrong side of the ring. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was very good and served as a, an excellent compliment to other things on the show. Would be my overriding take on it. Matt, and Trent, uh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say before you, before you go, I just want to say I, I do I, I overall agree with Alan, and I'll just add one other thing to what I said. I think this match had the right feeling. It felt sufficiently epic to end the weekend and end the feud. So that that's the only other thing I'll add. Yeah. I, I mostly agree with your review, Matt. Um, I, 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 I agree. It's, it's like a very good, I think this match, it it's works better as a feud ender than as a match and more as a spectacle than a match, but especially as a feud ender, because like, I feel like if we saw this, it was this, the same match. It was not ending this long running feud. It wouldn't have been as good because there is, yeah, a lot of it is just, one weapon after another after another and guys stopping the match to set up the next thing over and over and over again. Usually I don't like that, but for a match that's been the story of this feud has been, you know, kind of weapons used against guys. So them being callbacks, like it did kind of feel like this is the kind of match this feud had to end with. So I agree with you on that, that like it had that vibe. The one thing I would disagree with is, well, you didn't even really come down that against it, but like, I agree that Colt dominating this match in some ways could be a little bit weird when Homicide has dominated so much of the feud. But I feel like that in some ways made it like a little bit worse of a match. You, you know, uh, probably would have been a little more excited if it was even a little more back and forth. But I feel like for the feud, 
it kind of made sense that Colt getting so dominated in so many of these matches, he kind of needed the last match to be a match where he turns the tables and kind of runs over Homicide a little bit, and that's exactly what we got. Even though it is a little weird, like, all of a sudden, like, how did Colt all of a sudden get so good against Homicide after getting his completely destroyed by him so often? I, I do feel like this feud kind of needed that. Um a couple notes I got. One, the, the, three, the highlight of this match in some ways, uh, Homicide does his tope and goes all the way into the front row. As, as he does, as Homicide yeah. does, yeah. But he lands onto a, an old woman. I believe something, I don't know if this fan knew them, said that she was like a 60 year old grandmother. She, she definitely looks like she could be, a, if this woman was listening and she was younger, no offense. She, if she was a 60 year old grandmother, she probably said, boy, you better slow down, Homicide. You're going to turn into butter. <laughs> Gotta keep bringing that like, one back. I think you can see. I can't make out 100 sure, but I think Homicide must have asked her, like, "Are you okay?" Because you can see her like nodding to him as he like leans over after she, you know, Tope's right onto her. And then Julius smokes, not so sensitive. He runs over and he says, and I quote, "You old ass bitch, get the fuck out of here." And I will say, luckily for him, she laughs and like takes it. But it's like amazing that she just got like Tope'd. Julius smokes his first impressions to get come over and. Say, hey you fucking bitch get out of your your seat that you bought a ticket for and it was just like my god smokes um god he guys lives the gimmick at least yeah <laughs> and, and um you know colt using homicide's blood as war paint i thought was great you know blood gets on the camera lens which we've seen before in Ring always like a crazy neat weird little thing but then we'll get to the chair throwing thing that happens. You guys have talked about it. I got a couple of live reports on that. Chris Vetter gave a report to the PW Torch and he wrote, it's quite a spectacle, but a few people got hit by chairs over the course of the evening. And then we go back to Jason, who in his PW Torch live report wrote, one chair hit Cabana hard in the head. I know you mentioned that earlier, um, Matt. And then Jason continues, Todd Sinclair motioned to the security at that point that that was, that it was enough. The security guard then tried to put a stop to the chair throwing. Several several fans got hit with chairs. Not smart of Gabe to book another chair riot, especially with what happened earlier in the show. Sinclair's arm was bloodied, but Cabana still wasn't. They do another. They do another one a month and a half later, by the way. And I was there for it. Just FYI, preview. Did you get hit on that? I was luckily like behind it all, but like. I like saw as saw seeing it from behind. I was like, this would have that would have been really kind of scary to be like within the middle of. Yeah, it, that, that's one of be scary to be in like one of the first couple rows, right? Because your your yeah. experience here has got to be someone that thinks they're a much better. Th- they think they're a Masato Yoshino level thrower, but they're not. Yes, yes. It's going to throw it to the ring and it's going to beam me in the back of the head. You know, I right? I would I would have been sca- I would have been scared if I wasn't in the back. Definitely. Yeah. So it, it is amazing that yeah, like that we were talking about earlier. Chris Hero throws a chair in the last night, hurt somebody. No one, he does it, he gets to do it again tonight, hurt somebody. They do a chair riot. Other people get hurt. Like it just, and then to your point, Matt, they do it again a month and a half later. Like, I guess they, until someone sued them, they weren't going to stop doing this. They were like, well, as long as no one gets that angry, let the chairs flow. But either way, um, we get to the post match then. After the match, Ricky Reyes and a freed from his ring tape, Julius Smokes attack Cabana. The crowd starts banging the guardrail signs in time to see him punk's theme. I feel like some fans must have actually expected punk, especially after, you know, the unscripted two appearance that he was going to appear. But I did not put this in my notes, but I think I read somewhere that, um, 
Punk, they thought there was plans that Punk was going to come backstage to hang out, but for whatever reason, he didn't show up for the show, actually, even though it was in Chicago. Oh, I think we talked about the last show. Didn't you mention that, that maybe he was practicing, you were speculating that maybe he was practicing for his, uh. Yeah, I, I was only half, I was only half serious about that, but he was going to be in like a, a segment at WrestleMania. He was, so like. But, um, yeah, um. So anyway, Reyes and Smokes at this point grab a noose, they put it around Colt's neck, and they look to hang him when an angry homicide tells them to stop. Homicide actually gets real mad at Smokes. He yells at him, yells at him and Reyes to back off. He gets on the mic and he says, Colt Cabana deserves respect for defeating a fucking legend like him in Ring of Honor. Homicide again stops Smokes from going after Colt because Smokes keeps wanting to go after him. Homicide says, you want goddamn peace, Colt? I don't get no fucking peace. Homicide teases swing a chair, but instead he offers a hand and even drops to his knees, shouting, please forgive me. Uh, Colt shakes hands and the two hug. Some confetti comes down in one corner of the building. And I thought, where did they put confetti in one corner of the building? But then a Derek Bergen and Keith Lipinski live report reveals that, quote, confetti then shot from an air blower, but was set so far back into the crowd, only a little bit of the celebration confetti made it into the ring. So actually, that was not intended to be one small corner of the crowd. It was supposed to be in the ring, just didn't shoot far enough. But either way, confetti comes down. The crowd chants ROH. Colt even shakes Smoke's hand as, as Smoke's a homicide will leave the ring to allow Colt to celebrate alone in, in the ring. So, yeah, this was a very – I think, Alan, you were alluding to this earlier. This is like a very divisive thing, and I was way more negative. But rewatching it, it made, softened me a bit where some people were thinking after a feud – where these two guys, especially Homicide, tried to kill Colt multiple times. Like, not an exaggeration. That was the storyline. He was trying to murder him. Um, that after this one match, not only do they, like, not hate each other, they hug, you know, um, confetti comes down, like, like it's like a, a happy celebration. Like, 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 people think that's the wrong thing for a tone. It's wrong that they're making up like that. I feel like what rewatching it, it feels a bit more earned, but I can still see why people dislike some, not everyone, but some people dislike that as an ending. Uh, Alan, what you, what'd you think about like the idea of having kind of a, basically using this in a way just to turn, go from homicide being like the most evil guy in the world to turning him face. Sorry, am I off mute here? Yes, you are. You are. I went really wonky there for a sec. Um, I had to pull it out. Um, yeah, uh, so like, I never was overly perturbed by it, but I under, I, ne- I never um, fought against the very severe criticism that people had at the time. Like, there were people who hated this at the time and it, yeah. got, a lot, it got a lot of shit. And I saw where those people were coming from it didn't bother me to that extent but i did kind of see it as eh, yeah maybe it is a little silly um however watching it in 2022 eyes it's like i i don't know if it's just stuff like that was held to a higher standard back in that era that in 2022 i watch them like <laughs> what are people so mad about <laughs> Well, they shook hands. Like it, just, it didn't seem like that big of a betrayal of the feud or anything. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just there's a lot less, um, yeah, care and maybe pride in detail work nowadays in a lot of places in wrestling that you see stuff like that or worse, like all the time. So, um, 
yeah, it really didn't seem as bad. Um, and I do think the way it's kind of done is a little bit silly with homicide, just kind of just being so over the top with it. Um, but hell, I, I thought it was all great when like homicide goes back and Copa Cabana starts playing a cold with his concussion after his death match just says, yep, full on dusty roads. Now time to start strong. <laughs> I did like that at the very end. You could see Colt like saying to Homicide like off mic, like it's over, it's over. Like 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 he was in shock. Like he almost couldn't believe that it, it was going to be over now. That like he didn't have to worry about this anymore. Um, Matt, what did you think about it? I I agree with you. Like I I I was more bothered by it then. Although I wasn't one of the people that was like thought it was like an, an abomination or anything. But like yeah. I think for as illogical as you could say it is for. For Cabana and Homicide to, like, for, for Cabana to forgive Homicide, for Homicide to, like, suddenly do this big turn just because he lost a, a brawl to Colt, like, one brawl after he beat him, like, a million times. I, I think the emotions ring true enough that it works. You know, like, it, it's emotionally logical, even though it's not actually logical, if that makes sense. Like, it just hit right that the fact that, you know, Cabana just, like, this relief, like, Cabana does a great job of playing relief. Even if you could say that, you know, Homicide was a little bit over the top in his apology. Yeah. Cabana's relief just like really works here. And I think, you know, like just like that really sold it. It's just like we've all, everybody who's watched this, been through this journey over the previous like seven, eight months. And like this is finally the catharsis. And, you know, and just like the, oh yeah, it actually is over. Like, ah, oh, we can all breathe. Cabana can start strutting and becoming himself again. And so I think that, like, it just came off as, like, a dramatic in a good way. And I ended up really liking it, actually, in the end. Like, I think it just was a really great moment. And I also just want to add this about the feud. Because um, I do think there were some bad elements to the feud. You know, I think there was a little bit of repetitiveness. And I think, you know, like, Cabana's promos, serious promos, weren't always so great. But I really do think it was necessary for him to get a chance to play this part of having to be more serious and more intense. And, like, obviously he didn't stick with it, so maybe he didn't think it was the way to go. But, like, I think it's good that he had this. I think it was good for his career. I think it gave him more depth. I think it gave him more experience doing different things. And I'm I'm happy that we got this feud, even though I wasn't always a fan of how it went or necessarily all the promos. Yeah, I I agree. Like, like... Match to match, show to show, it isn't my favorite feud, but there was some real high points. But I do, if nothing else, like, it was not a bad feud. It was a good feud, but I think it was especially, it was memorable. Like, there are feuds that I probably have enjoyed, like, segment to segment more than this that I won't remember as much. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, 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 to me, the highlight was that um, was the fourth anniversary. Like that was just so dramatic and intense. Like, but I, I really, I really did like this ending sequence. I think it just it felt good. Like you don't really get that in ROH very often, and so it just felt like so such closure. I, I like so, that. So much of what you said is like the perfect seed into the one comment I have from uh, Colt Cabana after the match because uh, he told uh, Ring of Honor wrestler Colt Cabana tells the Pro Wrestling Torch that he's glad his feud with Homicide is over so that he can go back to working normal wrestling matches instead of the recent hardcore style matches he's been working with Homicide. Quote, we killed each other for the past eight months, he says. I'm glad that could all come to an end in a peaceful manner. I was ecstatic that all my Chicago neighbors were around the ring supporting me in this brutal match. That really made the difference. Peaceful? What'd you say? Peaceful? 
<laughs> I'm glad it's over and well, I can move the on. The handshake was peaceful. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad it's over and I can move on and smile once again in the wrestling ring. So I think that really goes again to the point of just like the relief of maybe even some real relief there of like, okay, I can finally go back to kind of my bread and butter and not do these bloody, violent, prop-filled brawls that I, I just got hurt on, you know, ever for a while now. But um, I'm just surprised that Wade was taking uh, calls from Cabana after Cabana had admitted that him and, and Punk used to prank call Wade and say, <laughs> Nick Bockwinkle has old balls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, that was uh, Wade, wasn't it? I, I, Who else I, would it be? Yeah. Oh, those were happier days. But um, finally, now I got to look up how old Nick Bonkwinkle was to really see how old his balls were, because you know it's a rel- <laughs> old is a relative term, even for balls. <laughs> finally, we uh, cut to Brian Danson at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School, looking over a contract with ROH owner Kerry Silken. We can't hear what they have to say, but we get our usual. To be continued graphic, duh, duh, duh. Our last to be continued, Matt, because the Milestone series will end soon. But finally, that is our show. But before we get our thoughts, Gabe Sapolsky reviewed the shows for us. Um, speaking to The Torch, Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch that there wasn't one particular moment from the Triple Shot weekend that stood out to him. Quote, it is really hard to pick any particular moments from this past weekend that stand out. There are just so many, he says. The weekend was just such a home run on every level. There was just so many great things. This weekend was designed to be the ultimate wrestling weekend, and it was. So Polsky believes the entire Ring of Honor roster was willing to go, go, willing to go to the extra mile to deliver extraordinary performances this weekend, which may have contributed to the long list of Ring of Honor wrestlers that have suffered injuries. Quote, everyone wrestled really hard for all three nights, he says. There were no off nights. Everyone really just went full blast on every show because the whole crew knew how important this weekend was. So... Gabe has gone, Rick, we've said in the past that he believes these three shows, I think one or two before it and maybe the one after it, are the best shows Ring of Honor did. There, there, are, three, there are three different Gabe-style reactions slash reviews to his, his shows. Um, they always fall into one of these three categories. Um, category one, which this clearly was. He absolutely loved the show, genuinely thought it was a massive success, is so super happy and proud about it, and just wants to share that with you and wants you all to see it. And I always am so happy for him when when he gets to be like, it's it's, it's very heartwarming when you see Gabe as happy with his his products as that. Uh, Category two is the show maybe wasn't as good, but Gabe is going to try his damnedest to convince you that it was and be like he'll come out with he'll be almost as strong in the praise but it's very clear that uh, there's holes in in what he's saying and doesn't really hold water and like yeah no gabe wasn't all you're (laughs) you're saying it was and then category three is a large jump for uh gabe just the show was a complete disaster to him, and uh, he doesn't even try to sell it's good. This was happy Gabe. I, you know, I, as I said earlier, I thought for a while that this was the best Ring of Honor show. Um, I, I think even then, I would have never said there was a, like, a match of the year candidate on the show. But I think the strength of the show is, as I mentioned, the variety, but also just the, the high level of everything, because you take the first two matches out, which are both two very enjoyable 
fun matches for what they were. Um, nothing wrong with them at all, I would say. Um, and then after that, they basically reel off five matches in a row that you could argue are all four star level or in certainly two cases for me comfortably above four star level. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think to have that level of consistency, that high level consistency tread show, um, really separates it from a lot of Ring of Honor. It separates it from Supercard of Honor the night before, which Supercard of Honor had higher highs, but definitely had lower lows. And um, you'd say that about a lot of the other kind of Ring of Honor shows at that point that are thought of as some of the best. This was just, yeah, a, a lot of meat on the bones with this show. And it, um, it, yeah, I, I really think, thought highly of it at the time, still think highly of it now. Holds up very well. In addition to the matches, you've got that really fun Danielson promo segment. Yeah. You've got the CZW Cornette stuff, which, okay, this probably wasn't the greatest segment of that feud, but still, that feud was so hot at the time that anything that was happening with regard to that was, like, exciting. So, um, yeah, uh, you had different characters developing, like Jimmy Jacobs, um, on the undercard and, um, you had a, a few, a feud ending in the main event. You had a great guest appearance with Lance Storm. You had the Dragon Gate guys making their presence felt again and kind of ensuring that they'd be brought back in the future, um, as, as a regular kind of act that could be relied upon. Um, so yeah, a total home run show. Um, and if, if you like, the type of show where everything's good and nothing stinks, then this is a really easy recommendation. Yeah. Um, Matt, I'm going to let you have final word on this. So I'm just going to say, Matt, we've been on this and, you know, we knew going in, I think this was going to be a well-reviewed show. We remember it and, you know, it was going to hold up to some degree. This is obviously a great show. It's a must watch. If you're only a casual ring of honor fan, it's the kind of show where if you only want to watch even like five old ring of honor DVDs, this is going to be one of the ones you should be watching. If you're going to limit yourself to that much. Um, I think the only question for me is, is it the greatest ring of honor show ever? And like Alan, I'm kind of have a hard time now just thinking about that because it, it, it's got one of the greatest atmospheres ever because it's got a really great crowd, both in size and, and volume, um, audio volume, not size. Cause that would just, be, but, um, it's, it, it's got a great variety of match types like Alan mentioned, but also, you know, there's a lot of good promo. How many promo segments did we laugh at or say we're really good, like more than usual on a ring of honor show. And it's one of those shows, Matt, we all, we've also talked in the past that sometimes there are Ring of Honor shows that are great because they have great matches, and sometimes there are Ring of Honor shows that are great because they feel important, and occasionally you get one where you get both. I feel like that was the case. The only thing that makes me wonder if I would put this as one of the best is, again, like Alan said, it has some really, it has some matches I would qualify as great or close to great, or, you know, like, and a lot of good ma- matches up and down the show, but it does not have that one match you were going to put on a, like a, 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 a match of the year list contendership. Even I, I, I don't think that, and you know, ring of honor, it is a company kind of built around that. And to me, that's the one thing that when I think about, if I'm ever going to be asked if what's the best ring of Honor show ever, it's the one thing about the show that would give me hesitance is there's not that Joe as fun and as unfair as this is to say, there is not that Joe versus Kobashi, Joe versus punk, 
you know, there, there's not that match here, which is I, an unfair I think expectation. I think in 2007, they they probably top it. I think with, like, whether you talk about the pay-per-view or the actual um, live event, that driven show from Chicago, because, I mean, the pay-per-view has the Danielson-McGuinness match tacked on from Philadelphia. The live event has the Kenta Danielson 2, which I think is even better than Kenta Danielson 1, um, which wasn't on the pay-per-view, but was on the live event. Um so I think that show, whichever way you look at it, um, is probably better and maybe man up as well from Chicago. So, yeah, Frontier Fieldhouse, uh, uh, the, those fans were lucky in 2006 yeah. and 2007. They, they, they got they some shows. Matt, what did you think about this, though? Um, well, all right. So you mentioned like that this show might not be the best because – well, first of all, first of all I'm not going to be ready to say anything is the best ever yet because we've done this rewatch and we have not gotten to a lot of stuff. Yeah. I can only really fairly say is this the best show we've seen. And so like you mentioned this doesn't have a top-level match of the year candidate. And the other show that I had been kind of holding on to as the best show, Manhattan Mayhem, also didn't. Um so I don't know if that would really factor in for me. I think what we can very clearly say, and I think you would agree with me, as far as just purely in the ring consistency and quality, the past four shows that we reviewed have been head and shoulders above anything we reviewed before. Like yeah. starting with Best in the World, going to Dragon Gate Challenge, onto Supercard of Honor, onto Better Than Our Best. All four of those shows are the best wrestling shows that ROH has ever done um, at this point in time. Um we talked a lot in 2005 about how, you know, some of their, they had, they had, by the end of the year, they had some really good high end, like match of the year candidates. But there was also some shakiness in the undercards as far as like blandness and things like that. You know, I think like we are really seeing with this milestone series why people talk about 2006 as being just another level. I was always a huge fan of 2005 ROH. Like it was the year that got me into it and all that stuff. I really do think, at least in this first quarter of the year, 2006, the shows are just like, wow, especially these milestone series. Like, they're just a lot better. Like, just from in the ring, just like from top to bottom, everything is really clicking. There's so many overacts. Like, I, it just, the, the undercards are not dull. Um, so I would say this probably is the best show that we've seen so far, just in terms of like in the ring. I think there's things about Manhattan Mayhem that I like better. And I think, you know, there's some dramatic elements of like nowhere to run that I really like, but like, just like in the ring top to bottom, this is a spectacular show that if it happened now, people would be like, this is an amazing show. Like there's, there's nothing about it. That's like, I mean, you know, I'm not sure there's nothing about it that's dated, but like this show would hold up quality wise to now. And I don't feel like 2005 or even 2004 ROH shows really hold, would hold up to now. So that's why I feel like the Milestone series really marks a line of demarcation where it's like, okay, this is the modern era of wrestling, and like what ROH was putting out then could hold up to anything you want to put up against it. Um, and I think this show is a really, really emblematic of that. I think you know if you want to see Supercard of Honor was better because Supercard of Honor did rank higher in the Wrestling Observer Awards um, because it just you know even though it had lower lows, it had so much higher highs. Yeah. Uh, I can accept that, but. Just if you just want to like watch a show for three and a half hours and just be like, yeah, nothing. I don't need to skip anything. Yeah, this this shows where it's at. This was this was this was spectacular. I mean, bravo! Like this was you know the, an emotional ending. Like what you know? How, how could you go wrong? This was really fantastic. They, I mean, Gabe should have been proud of this. 
Yeah, and uh, that brings us to the end of the show. So now it is time for plugs. Alan, we plugged off top, but now it's your time to plug anything you want to plug right now. The floor is yours. Well, I'm not sure I can plug my show on PW Torch VIP better than Trevor did earlier, so uh, go check those out. I will say what I always say when I plug PW Torch VIP is that... uh, uh, especially for older fans um, or younger fans that want to get a taste of uh, of a different era, I I think the archival stuff, both in terms of print newsletters, but also like the radio shows, the pro wrestling focused radio shows from like 1992 and 93, are just such a cool time capsule of just yeah it those are it's so awesome that they exist and that wade kept them and converted them to digital format and that they're there so i strongly recommend that people check out pw torch vip and you can find me on twitter at alan 4l and other than that no plugs at all i um yeah no 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 plugs i'm not doing nothing else i'm, I'm taking it <laughs> taking it easy and uh yeah I went over went over to Germany for the first time in in three years uh, and uh, was able to put my feet up and uh, chill out. I wasn't doing an ounce of work and I uh, was more <laughs> than happy uh, for that to be the case. I had a, an, an open offer if I wanted to commentate any of the matches. I was like, guys, you're all right. Um, you've got your guys here now. They're doing a lovely job, and I'm just gonna relax here and enjoy the shows at my own pace. <laughs> you're in your you're in your Lance Storm 2006 years. You you do it when it feels like you want to do it now. Otherwise, yeah, yeah no, I, I I I I think my wrestling commentary days are done. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to go back down that. Uh, um, I, 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 I'm not sure I could get a better experience from it than I got mm. in, during the times I did it. So it's like, yeah, why, why tack more on now? I don't know. There's, I'd have to be, um, yeah, I'd have to be really, uh, there'd have to be something that would really like, that I'd be really in. Like if Dragon Gate called me up and we're like, Hey, you know, come over to Japan and, uh, and commentate our like biggest show of the year and we're gonna have proper cheering crowds and it's gonna be awesome and a packed house so like, yeah yeah sure i'll do that <laughs> but aside from that or like someone uh bringing lance russell back from the dead and let me do a, a show with him um uh I, I don't think i'll be doing much commentary anytime uh, soon well um if you want to get in touch with us at Through the Years, that would be through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H for through. Um, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter. Um, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you again, Alan, so much. So next time on the show, we will be ending the Milestone series by covering Ring of Honor's 100th show, which means we will also be doing our 100th show. It will be a momentous occasion where we won't do anything special except us be us, which is very special. Oh, very special. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.